This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is sponsored by Warby Parker, Movement Watches, The Great Courses Plus, and Blue Apron. And... And, and what? And we're back. Sorry. I was just, I'm still stunned from our last YouTube appearance there. <laughs> so we're in the studio. We're back in the studio here without a camera. Thank God. Uh, did you not enjoy our little endeavor last week, Forrest? Uh, no, <laughs> it's very, no, I enjoyed the interaction. It's a one-sided conversation. i just got used to finally my voice being out there in the interwebs. The problem is that once you see yourself and you're forced to watch it, which I do not enjoy, you notice every little single weird tick that you do. Yes. You probably just ignore all yours. In case you missed it, we did a live streaming appearance on our YouTube channel, and we blathered on about a wide variety of things, including but not limited to <laughs> answering questions from listeners via chat. Even though it's come and gone, it is archived on our channel, oh and you boy. can watch it there anytime you'd like to see what a couple of guys who have no idea what they're doing look like on camera. Again, it was a fun little treat. So mm-hmm. now you might have missed that appearance because we only announced it about 30 minutes ahead of time on some of our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Those, by the way, are among the best ways to stay on top of what we're doing from moment to moment, and that in our newsletter, uh, which Tess has recently taken over after firing Scott for not sending them out regularly. I I, I was busy. Yeah, right, let's yeah. let's okay. get back on point. Here. All right. Very the good. reason we announced it kind of quietly and just before we did it was because, well, I'll just say it. We we were scared. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, Scott. Well, it probably is for me anyway. But the bottom line is we weren't sure if it was going to work more so to the point. We were using new software and some of the new hardware that we just didn't know if we would be able to trust it to deliver reliable sound and picture to you guys. So uh, especially for a solid 90 minutes without crashing, which that's the other part of it. There was no breaks. Yeah. He got up and left. <laughs> I had to sit there one point. for an entire, yeah, just all the way through. So that was a little challenging. Well, the exciting news is overall it did work. And like all people who appear on camera, we're now both on crash diets and overhauling <laughs> our wardrobes. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Well, I didn't start off that way, but uh, we had complaints, yeah. shall we say. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll be doing live streams again, though. And in fact, we've already rented a 10,000 square foot studio <laughs> with a 500,000 gallon water tank under the removable floor for our Mary Celeste follow-up series. That's not going on my card, man. <laughs> yeah, I didn't approve that. Yeah. In 2017, we'll be announcing them well in advance and also trying to choose times that work as well as can be managed for listeners across the globe. And speaking of live shows, another quick reminder that we'll be in Detroit at the Lorenzo Cultural Center, connected with Macomb Community College on May 4th, 2017 at 7 p.m. as part of their special series, Tall Tales and Folklore, Exploring Michigan's Traditional Stories. If you thought we seemed a little unpolished on the live YouTube stream, (laughs) you're not going to want to miss the opportunity to see us live on stage where the scores can really change. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The fear of death follows from the fear of life. A man who lives fully is prepared to die at any time. Mark Twain. Join us tonight for a look at some unusual deaths throughout history that, well, let's just say they caught our attention. Okay, so the last two shows of 2016 are upon us, and we spent some time trying to figure out what we should discuss at this unique time of year. Here in the U.S., 2016 has been a time of great change. 
Well, it's been that way overseas as well, in fact, all over the world. Globally, 2016 has seen a great number of earth-shattering events, including the surprise of Brexit and back here, the surprising outcome of the U.S. presidential election. I think internally, at least the sense I have anyway, is that people are ready, for better or worse, for 2016 to be over and done with. It was a rough year for mass killings, both at the hands of our fellow man and in tragic disasters. 2016 saw the Pulse nightclub attack in Florida in June and the horrific terror attack the very next month in July on the streets of Nice, France. And just the other day, we had this horrible warehouse fire at a building known as the Ghost Ship in downtown Oakland, California, where over 30 people perished. In addition to all of the political turmoil around the world, both domestic and abroad, there was no shortage of horrific losses in the artist and entertainment community. And we really did lose a lot of amazing, talented people this year. And I just wanted to, in no particular yeah. order, David Bowie is one of the first ones yeah. that comes to mind. Yeah. You know what, Scott? A quick thought here. Yeah. It's a lot of people that were from our era, which gives us a sense of mortality. Yeah, you know it sure does. They were really significant to us because they're kind of in our wheelhouse, shall we say, yeah. culturally. Yeah, exactly. So I made a little list here, and it's certainly not everybody. A lot of people I'm leaving out, but David Bowie, Prince, Alan Rickman, Leonard Cohen recently, the Beatles producer, George Martin, Gary Shandling, the comedian, R2-D2, Kenny Baker, Mm -hmm. Kenny Baker, who played R2-D2, Glenn Frey from the Eagles, Mm -hmm. Gene Wilder, and somebody who should not be left out, the librarian from the original Ghostbusters. Uh, Alice Drummond. Alice Drummond, (laughs) who was an accomplished actor. She had done much more work than just that little cameo. But we also lost Abe Vigoda and Ron Glass, who both were on one of my favorite shows when I was a kid, Barney Miller. The thing with Abe Vigoda, right, is that for years people were, oh, an article mistakenly got published that said he had passed away. People were like, he looked old in The Godfather. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so it's like, oh my gosh, that's too bad. He was so great. He's like, he took out an ad, I think, or appeared in an, an article sitting up in a coffin saying, like, not dead yet. No, then, yeah, because it kept he, happening. And then you yeah. made it into a joke. It and was then, a running gag. Conan would bring him out. Conan and just, latched onto yeah. it. They actually reenacted that scene in, from The Godfather with Robert Duvall. And right. It was He's pretty Tessio. Yeah, yeah Tessio. Exactly. And we also lost Muhammad Ali. Yeah, Pat Harrington, right? I didn't say him yet. Yeah, oh, if you sorry. don't know who that was, that's Schneider from One Day at a Time. Uh, yes, he right. always wore the tool belt and the uh, denim vest. Yeah, right? had a yeah. pack of cigarettes rolled up in his yeah, sleeve. Yeah, very 50 Which sure. I thought was super cool when I was a kid. Yeah, all the Fonz did that. Yeah. Know? Actually, a lot of the, all of the uh, the, the so-called motorheads and greasers, you know, from my dad's era, they they did that. Yeah. yeah. And we lost uh, Florence Henderson. I know. Mom that's, from that's the, the Brady Bunch. Uh, uh, yeah. That house, the Brady Bunch house is uh, less than a mile from where we sit right now, actually. That's true. And uh, she was all of our moms in a way. You yeah. Know? She was all of our TV moms. We're wow. kind of a, one of the big generations to be raised on TV. We were latchkey kids. We were, yeah. You and I actually on a necklace. (laughs) No one was home. You walked home by yourself. I broke in every day, but yeah, I know what you're saying. (laughs) Both my parents had to work, so uh, Scott and I are both uh, only children, so we've kind of had to grow up a little bit fast. And you know, the few hours before your parents came home, you flicked on the TV, you did a little homework, uh, you had a snack, and that was uh, that was your school day. Yeah, and the the truth is, famous people leave us every year, and you've already kind of alluded to this. I don't know if it makes it any more significant how human perception affects it. And you just said these are people from our generation. And I think some of them, certainly, if I'm talking about Barney Mill, it's a very old TV show. Yeah. On the other hand, I think the cultural impact of both Prince and David Bowie, for example, goes across many, many generations and will for generations right. to come. Right. So they're kind of heavy hitters when it comes to affecting people all over the world from all ages. I just think about the talent of people from various generations. And you'll hear this, especially if you're younger, that, you know, we lost a great actor here and there. And 
and you look back on some of the stuff, again, it's like people's likes and dislikes and, and what your experience is. You know, if you're younger and a giant uh, in the acting world dies and they mostly did black and white films, you're going to say, well, who cares? That was all old films with no color. I don't, right. I don't know who that is. Who cares? Right. And then when you're 75 and Justin Bieber passes away, <laughs> <laughs> you, oh, there was one of the greats there. You know, he is a, a, oh, an entertainer, nobody's a dancer. Say that. Well, that's what I'm wondering. <laughs> that, you know, what I'm saying is that who will be the kids that your kids won't know about? You yeah. know, it's just like... It's about what's relevant exactly. to you. I, speaking of things that are no longer around, there yeah. used to be this amazing, amazing cartoonist named Larson who just did really, Gary really, Larson, yeah, yeah. really funny cartoons and he retired. He, he was like, I've had it. He up and he quit. He made a billion dollars. Yeah, he, he made a done. fortune. Yeah. And I actually have his anthology, which I will still get out like once or twice a year and look through and it just continues to make me laugh. Oh, but they're classic, yeah. He talks in that book about one of the ones that he did that nobody got. And it was this just this picture of these oxen, two oxen pulling a guy on a wagon and they're out in the desert, and over to the right is there's a skull of a dead ox. And the two oxen both, they're just looking at it, and there's no words or anything. And he said so many people wrote yeah. in when that got published in the newspaper. This used to be, that was where all his, his comics yeah, appeared. Yeah, so it's a, it's a one, uh, what do they call it, one frame. Yeah. There's a term for it in cartooning. Yeah, I, I can't remember. Well, you do the whole joke. Skip's going to get mad at us. Well, no, my, <laughs> sorry. my other uh, favorite still producing is Dan Perraro. Yes. And so his strip is called Bizarro. Yes, Bizarro, yes. But yeah, it's a whole joke in one sentence, either with or without text. This comes back to my thing about how you relate to these, the passing of these entertainers, actors, and singers. Yeah. And what he said was that for him, that was about those two oxen seeing <laughs> yeah. a dead oxen's head yeah. on the side of the road. And the guy on the wagon's like, what? I, we're going through the desert here. And they're like, no, but what, what happened to that guy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's really, it just, he yeah. said it was a message about you see what is relevant to you. The human, he's like, it's just another ox. You keep moving. And, and to them, it's like, no, no, that's uh, that's kind of one of us. So yeah. where are we going That where that might happen to us? There was another particularly sad loss that actually took place, again, very close to where we're broadcasting from right now, about two miles away. And that was Russian-American actor Anton Yelchin, who played, very deftly played, Chekhov in all the new Star Trek movies. And he died in what some people might call a freak accident. His Jeep, which he thought he'd left in park, rolled down his driveway and crushed him to death while he was trying to open or close his gate at his house. He was at the mailbox. Yeah. I, he was getting his mail. Yeah. Is that what he was doing? Yeah, okay. that's what I believe is that he'd parked the car and other people have had this kind of problem with that particular vehicle yeah. because it's push button. So I guess there's a lot of lawsuits pending against Fiat Chrysler regarding the design of the transmission selector. So the freak accident label might not stick on that one, but it is a little strange though. The freaky part to me, the car not only rolled up into him, but it was able to do that quietly enough that it essentially snuck up behind him. And well, it, my, my theory is that he goes to get the mail. He's reading the mail. He's kind of distracted. You know, I do that. As soon as I pull it out of the box, I'm looking at the titles of the, of the envelopes. It kind of rolls back gently because it's in his driveway, right? Yeah. So it pinned him between the vehicle and the fence of the mailbox. Yeah. yeah. It pinned him and it compressed. He couldn't breathe. You, that's exactly. Essentially. Yeah. And well, it's how they, they, you know, it's how they killed people in, publicly in the Middle Ages. They put stones on you yeah. until you can't breathe. So kind of the same thing happened to him. And they recalled 800,000, Fiat Chrysler recalled 800,000 vehicles for this problem after hundreds of complaints of similar things that not necessarily all ended in death, but the, the recall letter actually apparently came to Anton's house seven days after he died. Oh, geez. This will be a little bit like 
legend starting here. And, and look, we're all very sad because he was a great, again, that's I what I said, him. a young... His Chekhov was amazing. His Chekhov was great. I heard him on, a, on an interview where he was, he's of uh, Russian uh, descent. Yes. His parents, I believe, are, are from the old country directly. And he was Yeah, like, they were figure skating, coaching and... Uh, yeah. Uh, I yeah. Think, yeah. But, but they, he was apparently not a good skater. He's a great <laughs> actor. Have, he's, he's a performer. That's yeah. all that counts. Yeah. But no, I remember casting agents like that. You want me to do that real thick kind of corny okay it's not really anchored but i'll do Chekhov like that and, yeah and uh, so he wasn't really quite down with that but he's been so many other uh great performances that are very subtle and and again gone too soon you know unfortunately he won't be an old great actor uh people of this generation won't see him get into his in his you know his real statesman-like years as, yeah. as an actor but yeah well, what happened to Anton Yelchin reminded us of passings throughout history and around the world where the circumstances, shall we say, in a word, are unusual. Yeah. Yeah, well, we actually made reference to one of these on our live show from last week, the infamous story of Gloria Ramirez, who was wheeled into an emergency room in 1994, emitting an odor that sickened 23 emergency room staffers with five requiring hospitalization. And I just want to say a quick thing here. It was very unusual in that it really affected me as far as like what we remember. Now, I'm kind of known for having a very good memory in some places and not so much in others, but it's a 22-year-old story and it was fascinating to me what I remembered and didn't remember. So what I was kind of put on the spot there. Yeah. Again. The, when we were on the, the live show. Of hour, 90 minutes straight <laughs> without a break or looking things up. Well, I got uh, a break. I know. Well, not a quick, but I, uh, yeah. I need to go back and look at it because many people have written or made comments about <laughs> the look of panic on your face when I stepped out of the frame for a minute. No, it's like, <laughs> wait, no, I was hoping I'd get a break too. The panic was like, no, 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 you don't get a break. You still... We can't have an empty camera, you know, pointing at an empty chair. So uh, somebody had to keep the ship sailing. So no, that was fine. This happens all the time. And there's a couple of instances tonight, and this is probably not the place in, this, in, you know, in our notes here for this, but I didn't want to forget it. There's a couple of stories that, actually there's three this week. One will be kind of later on uh, down the road. Two of them were sparked from vague memories of mine. Yeah. Yeah. We were doing the show and uh, we were talking about how, you know, sometimes you hear a story and there's no follow-up that you know of. Like I stuck with it for quite a while. This was 1994, mind you. So we had newspapers then as well as the (laughs) television news. And so I was eagerly looking. And then after a while, you kind of give up. And then 22 years goes by. It's like, I wonder whatever happened with that. I'll bet nothing would happen with that. And you find out Nope, something a little bit happened. With a that. little bit happened, yeah. And and since Forrest made a joke about it on the air and about follow ups on stories like that tonight, we're gonna follow up on it. And when we started digging into this, we found some other really fascinating stories. So we ask you to join us as we take a look at those passings, no less tragic than any other death, especially to the people's loved ones, but mysterious in a unique way that really causes your wheels to spin. Frankly, some of the more ancient ones, which we're deeming okay to laugh at all these years later, are kind of funny. Well, you know, so it's from the movie. It's Alan Alda, actually. Oh, okay. (laughs) One of my favorite lines from one of my favorite films, Crimes and Misdemeanors of Mr. Woody Allen. And it's like... uh, Comedy is tragedy plus time. So, you, you know, when, when Lincoln was assassinated, you couldn't joke about it then. See, now you had to, you had to wait a bunch of long years, and now it's kind of funny. <laughs> when it, stuff happens right away, again, that's your context. It's tragic, you know. But in the year, you know, 2750, they might be laughing about uh, Justin Bieber accidentally choking on his own gold jewelry or something. You know what I'm saying? This, yeah. It's gallows humor. It's a little dark. So that's what you're going to get tonight. That is what you're going to get tonight. However, next week in our last show of the year, we're going to embrace the other side of what the end of the year means, and that's new beginnings. We're going to take a look at some astonishingly miraculous stories of survival, particularly of people who defied the odds 
to live through events that one would have thought unsurvivable. But tonight, that's not what we're doing. Let's let's set the, <laughs> <laughs> this, let's, is the this is the endings part. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is the endings part because you know it's winter. It's the end of the year. It's a time of change. And like we said, I think a lot of people are ready for 2016 to get its butt out the back door. <laughs> well, <laughs> since the time of the ancients, literally the dark part of the year, the shortest days of the year. Yeah, it's the natural close of everything before the rebirth of spring. So winter, it's just all very natural. That's what yeah. I'm saying. Whether you're a Christian, pre-Christian, you go back to pagan times, whatever your your bag is. People against goodness and nicety. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> whatever your bag is, whatever culture or religion you are, or no religion at all, it's just a very natural marker for the end of something, the dying, the, the cold, to give way to new life. And one thing that kind of came up that was interesting, uh, just in a weird uh, roundabout reference, kind of serendipitously, was uh, the old poem, John Barleycorn Must Die. The idea is that it's a metaphor and that John Barleycorn, the actual corn, the grain, must perish, be transmogrified, transmuted into something else, which is beer and spirits that I can drink. So it's the going away, it's the shedding, it's the departing of something so that new, something new can arrive. Right. That's the way of the world. That is the way of the world. All right. Well, this list of unusual passings is sort of chronological. So we're yeah. going to yeah. start with the oldest one that, one of the most interesting older ones that I found, which was 2,700 years ago in the year 690. BC. Still not that old to me, but no, yeah. well, <laughs> no, no, like, no I, I mean, as you get older and you do, uh, you start learning actually more about history. And this is something that was hard in college to kind of wrap your head around is that my sense of time of, of what's actually ancient has greatly expanded. So yeah. now it's Sumerian. It's even before that. So, right. uh, and if you get real fringe, it might be at the Atlanteans 50,000 years ago, as some believe. So it's a long, long time ago, but really in the sca- in the span of things, it's just know, a few manageable. Minutes. Yes. Right. So <laughs> right. you, of course, have heard the expression draconian. Absolutely. And can you tell our listeners what draconian means? He was a legislator in ancient Athens, Greece. And I think some of the laws were a little bit uh, strict, shall we say. Yes, they right. were. He was the first recorded legislator in the history of Athens, actually. Yeah. And he did write up a series of laws that were real strict. Yes. Uh, people <laughs> did not like them. They involved a lot of death, didn't it? Yeah, there was Punishment kind of like death. if you try to run out of the 7-Eleven with milk, <laughs> you, you die. die. Yeah. If you park facing the wrong way on the street, you die. You die. Yeah. So it's and not bit, just any old death. They don't just uh, smother you with a pillow. It's usually back then in those times... It's not great. It's really something theatrical and and the most horrid things they could think of. Right. Okay, so let, let's talk a little bit about his strange passing. Yes. And th- this is pretty interesting, and then we'll come back to what he did. But he had left Athens to go to the island of Aegina, which at the time was a rival city of Athens and a great sea power. He Supposedly he had gone over there to work on some legislation for Aegina. Yeah. He was apparently very well liked, and he was invited to the theater on the island by the adoring people so he could bask in their adulation for him. As he entered this theater, his supporters showered him with their cloaks and hats in much the same way people throw flowers at bullfighters or stage performers at the end of a great performance or a run. Unfortunately, there were so many people that the garments piled up and kept piling up, and he was an older man at the time. Uh He completely suffocated... (laughs) 
underneath the hats and cloaks and died. Well, I would put that under ironic deaths. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> it was ultimately laid to rest right there in that theater. If they got the space and there's some dirt they why move him? This probably has happened to Tom Jones with panties. Well, <laughs> oof, not that many. I mean, I would hope not. But no. th those are meant for Tom, Mr. Jones to keep. Not <laughs> If you're throwing your hat and your cloak in ancient Greece, don't you want it back? I mean, yeah. you know, it wasn't all that easy back then to make clothing. I mean, this is a crazy story. I mean, being smothered by your adoring fans' clothing... Let's go back to the laws. He drew the laws up during the 39th Olympiad. Yeah, so you have uh, early uh, early Olympics here. Yeah. Right. And the laws, what they had done, it was they replaced or abolished the prior way of settling scores, which was done by a system called oral law, which was really just a code of conduct, and also blood feuds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Which is the other way that things got settled. So right. they were in need of some kind of regulation. His laws are, almost all people agree that in general, if you did something bad, you got killed. Yeah. <laughs> So I wanted more detail on this, so I read up on it a bit, and this tale of him dying under all these clothes, it might be a bit of revisionist history, and this is something ah, that's really interesting to good me. Good point. It's yeah. something we should state at the top of this, and again, it ties to these other stories that we're, we're looking at, and uh, memory, and the telephone game, and yes. people's faulty memories, and the better, what makes the better legend. If you do a little few little uh, literary tweaks here and there to the story, it makes a much better story. Right. And also helps you frame this narrative going forward especially if you're trying to manage masses of people, which yeah, well, when you're talking about yeah. a lawmaker, yeah. it's important that the perception of that person is managed for the greater good of the people, regardless of the fictionality of what he did. You mean what really happened or what didn't happen, right? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. This was so long ago, it's hard to know what really went down. And I got most of this info that I'm about to share from a book, uh, chapter nine of this book called, this is very hard for me to say, I'm not an expert in Greek. I think it's Nomodictes. Yeah, yeah, I think Nomodictes, N-O-M-O, Dictes, D-E-I-K-T-E-S, Greek Studies of Martin Oswald. Now, this is a collection of studies edited by Joseph P. Farrell and Ralph Mark Rosen. I got this stuff from chapter nine of that book entitled The Strange Death of Draco on Aegina, and that, that chapter was written by Thomas J. Figuera. The great bulk of this chapter in this book was over my head. Much of it was actually written in Greek, so I could say it was yeah, Greek to it me. Was, <laughs> that's where <laughs> so, that expression comes from. Yeah, yes. so good luck with my interpretation here. There was lots of triangles and things. But yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I think that the veracity of the story of his death has to take some things into account. Not much info about him really survives. He became more of a prominent figure about 200 years after he died, when he was really lifted up as the guy who preceded Solon, Mm -hmm. who was a statesman who, in an effort to reverse the decline of Athens, came up with a legislative framework that is considered by many to be the very foundation of democracy. So that guy Solon was Draco's replacement. He abolished all of Draco's draconian laws, except for the homicide one, apparently. Death deserves a, a, another death, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Yeah. So in a revisionist way, when the Greeks looked back on Draco, he was less a man and more a symbol of something that didn't really work for the long haul and was ultimately replaced by something better. So if you take all that into account, and then Draco having gone to this rival city where he was supposedly killed by a giant pile of clothes... <laughs> Yeah. You might want to consider that the story evolved later as it suited history. Mm. This chapter also pointed out that there's evidence that Draco's tomb was, in fact, in that theater. So 
who knows? Maybe he was killed by cloaks. What do you, th- you think they just uh, left him there? Like, he, hey, look, he's already buried. You know, just, <laughs> just throw some dirt on top of the cloaks. Well, there's, yeah. it's like everything that we have ever talked about on the show. There's yeah. a seed of truth in there somehow. Who no. knows what happened to him for real? Another good point, which yeah. will also come up in these other two uh, partially you know, addled memory kind of stories that are going to come up is that uh, oftentimes it does lead to a kernel of truth and, yeah. and things twist here and there. But I don't know what what the percentage is, but I think rarely something is made up out of, out of whole cloth, as they say, and, and is just a total figment of someone's imagination. Usually there's a little something in there that kind of got twisted over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why, why are you looking at me kind of funny? Well... <laughs> I just realized I don't usually ever see you wearing glasses. Are those your new Warby Parker frames? Why, yes, they are. And the reason you usually don't see me wearing glasses is that I've never really found a pair I like. But with the way I chose my frames at Warby Parker, I was able to take my time and narrow it down to frames I actually think look good on me. And you just picked out your own pair too, didn't you? That's right, I did. You just go to their website, look through their assortment of frames for men or women, then choose up to five frames you'd like to try on at home for up to five days. They ship you your selections for free, you see which ones you like, then you mail the samples back to them in the same box, again for free. Once you've decided on a pair, you place your order on their website, where you can enter your prescription yourself, scan it, take a picture of it, which is what I did, or you can fax it in, or even give them your eye doctor's info, and they'll contact them for you. And uh, Forrest will explain later what a fax is. <laughs> well, you know, having your choices at home makes the selection process so much better, especially if you're having trouble deciding, because you can show them to your friends or your family or even Warby Parker. Just use the hashtag Warby Home Tryon on social media, and they'll get back to you with comments and suggestions. Just make sure your accounts aren't private. And if you'd still rather go to a store, Warby Parker has almost 50 retail locations across the country for you to visit in person. And Scott didn't like his first round of choices, so he picked another round of five to have sent to him, right? Yeah, pretty much. And once I tried them on and wore them around a bit, you know, and asked my wife what she thought, I realized that I liked one of the five I had gotten, but I wanted to try more. So I actually sent them all back. I chose that favorite pair again, along with four new alternatives, and got a second home try-on kit that was just as free as the first one. And Warby Parker's awesome customer service was there to help me all along the way. Warby Parker uses state-of-the-art materials like cellulose acetate, Japanese titanium, and hypoallergenic stainless steel. Their standard prescription lenses are made from impact-resistant polycarbonate with the stronger prescriptions made with lightweight, high-index lenses. All of their prescription lenses offer 100% UV protection and come with anti-reflective coating and anti-scratch treatments at no extra cost. A new pair is made just for you when you order. They custom cut and polish the edges of the lenses so they fit perfectly, and then the frames are polished and assembled by hand. Plus, the super hydrophobic anti-reflective coating prevents lens smudges, so they stand by their one-year, no-scratch guarantee. And with their glasses starting at just $95, you could get a few different looks for the price of just one pair at most other places. They also carry sunglasses, and those start at $95 too, including polarized lenses. Prescription sunglasses start at $175. They're also a company with a heart, along with a vision, get it? Because for every pair of glasses sold, a pair is distributed to someone in need. Warby Parker believes that everyone has the right to see. Head to warbyparker.com legends to order your free home try-ons today. Choose the five frames you'd like to try on, mail the frames back, choose your favorite pair to have your prescription added to, and order. Warby Parker makes your experience completely risk-free and free shipping all around. 
Visit warbyparker.com slash legends to begin your free home try-on experience today. This is Matt Baldwin from Newcastle, Australia. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, so I want to talk about the next guy. (laughs) This person is somebody that Catholics are going to be quite familiar with. St. Lawrence. Yeah. Well, there's the St. Lawrence Waterway here in the United States. Oh, there you go. Uh This dude is the patron saint of cooks, comedians, and firefighters. (laughs) Now, I guess there's always been those. Those are all uh, old occupations. Right. St. Lawrence was, in fact, martyred by Valerian. Yes. From Ghostbusters. Uh, No, he... (laughs) Oh, wait, that's Gozer the Gozerian. Yeah, exactly. No, right, yes. right. Valerian. No, please, please get your, you know, <laughs> fictional history straight. Yeah. Valerian was the Roman emperor from the year 253 to 260. According to Aurelius Prudentius Clemens, in 258 AD, Lawrence was roasted alive on a giant grill, and he purportedly said at one point during the process, quote, turn me over. I'm done on this side. <laughs> with the, with the, the, and an ancient form of snare drum and cymbal was brought. Yeah. The, the, the very first rim shot. Yeah. If he did say that, hey, more power to you, buddy. That's a good way to go out. Yeah. You know, like, it's just a little bit defiant and a little bit funny. So. While in never-ending pain from uh, being burnt by a fire. Well, yes. As I said earlier, maybe an hour ago, that uh, they found the very worst ways to dispatch of you. Remember, I, I was telling yeah. you about the story of St. Eustace, who converted to Christianity. Christianity. Kind of blanking on the name of the emperor that did it where he was in good standing and then uh, he gave up paganism and they said, you gotta, you gotta give up this Christianity thing. And he's like, nope, nope, sticking with it. They roasted him and his whole family in a giant, uh, I think, metal kettle. <sighs> think about it. You'd rather go up immolated in flame because the fire is going to help suck the air. You kind of suffocate as well. I mean, yeah. yes, you're blistering horribly, yeah. which is awful. Tremendous pain, but I think you'd go quicker here. The idea is to draw it out for the entertainment of those watching. To be briefly explain what Valerian was doing, he was persecuting Christians. Sure. And that was why... Very popular sport back then. Yeah, and that's why St. Lawrence was martyred along with several other deacons. He was a deacon and a lot of other people that got caught up in it. But um, the thing about this is Prudentius, who wrote this account of what happened to St. Lawrence was a writer. And historians have not been able to really make a verification of this particular story and the turn me over and I'm done on this side thing. He, <laughs> I mean, he wrote it nearly 100 years after yeah. St. Lawrence's death. It's not like he was there and probably didn't talk to anybody who was right, there. Right. It was probably apocryphal. So we can't really know if he said, turn me over, I'm done on this side, but it does make... <laughs> Still a good joke. It's a great yeah. story. And it is understandable why St. Larry is the patron saint of cooks, comedians, and firefighters. Oh, St. Larry now. Well, that's yeah, what I want to call I know. him. Just uh, thinking if I can uh, offend... Several million people. <laughs> Again, yeah. <laughs> More than that, my friend. Here's what we do know, though, that they're pretty certain of, because this falls now into archaeology as well as records. And as uh, you'll hear in one of our spots, which we had fun uh, kind of uh, you know writing and, and talking about, you start getting into the Dark Ages. We don't have yes. a lot of records. The Romans kept excellent records. So did the Greeks. That's why we know a lot about that period. When you start getting into one, two, three hundred, actually the, the start of the very early Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, around 300 AD, it does get dark. Yeah. Uh, so there's not a lot. But what we do know is that they did these horrible things. I read a story. They, they also had, uh, I think the Romans had a giant metal bowl and they would, uh, was hollow. They'd put somebody inside, roast them inside. And as the person jostled and screamed for their life, it looked like the bowl came to life. Wow. 
just for people right. to be entertained. I'll make bowl. this other. I thought you were saying bowl. It was a bowl. Oh, it was a bowl. No. Yeah. And, the, and so the mouth was open and it was hollow. So, of course, when they were screaming and it looked like the bowl was doing it and they thought that was funny. I just want to make a quick note here. The gallery opening here at the uh, Los Angeles Museum here. And one of the people, one of the donors was first invited to Assyrian Tapestries. And that, that was the exhibit. And it showed, you know, these idyllic scenes of life and and she had said to the historians, like, oh, you know what? It would be so lovely to be back in those times when, you know, things were so peaceful and, and art and music and literature was so favored. And the historian said, ma'am, they used to roast people alive in oil for fun. <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't want to get in a time machine. Yeah. And this is a big point, and people get upset about this, but I always tell this to Scott. You may think that things are horrible now. They were much, much worse all throughout the rest of history. Yeah. Things are awful in different places of the world. We can see that. War is ter always terrible. But globally, it's not quite as bad as it could be. Yeah. So be thankful for that. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> get off my soapbox here. No, that's okay. That's yeah. all right. Well, all right. let's move on. I want to talk about Sigurd. Sigurd the Mighty. Sigurd the Mighty of Orkney. Oh, that's a great area. I love the, the Orkney Island. I want to go yeah. there so bad. Our friend of a show, uh, David Graham, he's he actually from that oh. area. Oh, he is? Yeah, he did a lot of the voices on Greyfriars Kirkyard for us. That's right. Um, Lift the snack and throw the bar. Yeah. Yes. Right. He's awesome. I thought he was just plain old Scottish. Yeah, <laughs> and he in, is. Edinburgh. But... That's a, a unique area. Area, it is uh, off by its kind of its own self has really kind of its own flavor of culture too. Yeah, right? it's it's a beautiful area, and I really want to get out there. But check out this story. This yeah. one, this one kind of takes the cake. I think I already said once that some other story was my favorite, but this is my favorite too. This it's one. not Canute Canute the Great. <laughs> no, not oh, Canute, right. uh, but uh, Sigurd the Mighty. Yes, I'm saying it right. <laughs> he was the first Earl of Orkney, uh, which, as we just pointed out, is a yeah. series of northern islands in Scotland. He was awarded the earldom after it was given to his brother by the Norwegian conquering king, King Harold, yes. who gave it to his brother who, because he lost a son in battle. The brother, however, didn't want to stay in Orkney, so he gave the earldom to his brother, Sigurd. Now, Sigurd, I'm going to just say it all different ways, so you can't say I said it right or wrong. <laughs> Sigurd like, was, was yeah. a good ruler, and he ruled Orkney well, becoming very, very powerful. But apparently he got into a dispute with a successful local Scotsman named Malbrigti Tusk. Are you sure that... Uh... No, I'm going to say <laughs> Malbrigti, Malbrigti Tusk. His, that name is Scottish, you're saying? Yes. Okay. Or he was also known as Malbrigti the Bucktooth. All these names. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, you're known as Pepin the Fat. It's like, yeah. hey, wait, hey, wait a minute. No, I couldn't be like just, you know, Pepin the Robust. Like, no, no. Well, History this... for forever, here on out, you're the Fat, the Bucktooth, Fork Beard. The Bucktooth <laughs> thing, yeah. though, that's going to come up. Wait for okay. it on this one. All right. All right. So these two gentlemen, Sigurd and Malbrigti the Bucktooth, or Malbrigti Tusk, were supposed to settle their differences in a battle. This is like a duel, and yeah. they, but they each get to bring 40 men to it. Now, Sigurd, a man who likes to win and didn't trust the Scottish people, ah. brought 40 horses to the battle, just as Melbrigti Tusk did. However, Sigurd had two warriors on each horse. <laughs> he cheated. So he brought 80 men to a 40-man fight. The Scots fought bravely and valiantly, but they were simply outnumbered. Melbrigti's men fell and he lost the lopsided battle. Sigurd, thrilled with his win, had the heads of all the fallen warriors cut off and strapped to the saddles of his warriors. This is what I'm talking about. 
rough times. Rough back times. Then. Rough yeah. times. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because they might have been. I'm gonna. I'll be better. No, nope. <laughs> we need your head. Now, no, I, now I'm, no. I think at this point there were 40 extra horses, so probably the guys that came on a shared horse you got know, to have he, their own horse, yeah, right? Yeah, see, that's a, kind of the opposite of the Knights Templar there, where their symbol was two guys and a horse because we're frugal. Yes. <laughs> so there's always a story. <laughs> it's really my own family, the frugal Scotsman. Yeah. Yeah, and everybody gets their own horse, but like, totally different uh, yeah, way to accomplish that. Well, Sigurd, being the leader, is Sigurdy Weaver. No, I'm kidding. Oh, very uh, good. Yeah, no, nice. Sigurd, yeah. being the leader decides he's going to put Melbrigti Tusk's head on his saddle because he's the oh, leader he that he the, defeated. Yeah, yeah he gets yeah. the prize. As he rode excitedly home at what can only assume might have been a gallop, Melbrigti the Bucktooth had his final revenge. His protruding buck teeth ground up and down against Sigurd's leg for the entire ride. This means that Melbrigti posthumously punctured Sigurd's leg in a periodontal assault with his protruding central incisors. Sigurd was dead from infection shortly thereafter. <laughs> nice alliteration there. Right. So, yeah. so what's happening is this guy's buck-toothed head bit <laughs> yeah. Sigurd and killed him. Yeah. That's just amazing. Well, there's another story I read. I don't think we've included it, but yeah. it's a, I believe, a Chinese cook, a chef that yeah. uh, was preparing a meal with the snake, poisonous one, and uh, cut the head off. And like maybe a half an hour, 20 minutes later... He accidentally gets punctured by it and dies. Oh, geez. so that happens so much again. Death by irony. Back then, no one's brushing their teeth. Yeah, you don't want to go yeah. back there and be kissing anybody. It's just <laughs> awful. But the fact that I totally believe that because you have a lot of bacteria in your mouth. Yeah, just by that ride, you if you've ever been on a horse, you know that's very bouncy, and I yeah. can totally see that happening. Yeah, that, you have to put yeah. your vanquished foes' heads in a saddlebag or maybe behind you. Uh, don't put them right up there by your leg. <laughs> Just for future reference. No, see, here's where he went wrong, is that he was showing off. Yeah. And no one can see the head in a bag. And I'll bet he was very recognizable. So here he is. He's Pride trying, he's, goeth before a fall. Well, and then, yeah, and, and uh, gangrene. So, well, yeah. here's, here's an interesting note. There is a game played in the Orkneys called Kirkwall Ba, and it's played at this time of year, usually around Christmas or New Year's. It's cited in Wikipedia as a traditional football game, and there are two sides. The uppies and the doonies. The doonies. Yes. Yeah. Or the up the gates and doon the gates. Gate being translated from road. So this game has been played since before records began, I guess. Quoting Wikipedia, it can be very fluid with its outcome often decided by a break, whereby one of the faster boys manages to break free of the scrum and runs with the ba, making valuable ground, sometimes making it all the way to his team's goal, thereby ending the game. The game can be as short as a few minutes or as long as several hours. But here's the kicker. The people of Kirkwall apparently will tell you that this game is based on the folklore surrounding the tale of Sigurd and Malbrigti the Bucktoothed. Our information for all this came from various sources, including the Orkneyinga Saga, which was written about 1230 by an unknown author. And we also got a bunch of it from Wikipedia. There's also a really great website on the Orkneys called orkneyjar.com, which we highly recommend you visit. It's got a lot of fascinating stuff. It's run by a gentleman named Sigurd Towery. Well, there you go. And I'm sure yeah. he's, he's going to have to tell me if I'm saying his name wrong. Hmm. Anyway, we have a link to his website in the show notes. Well, you know who it's time for now? Ah, Crown Prince Philip of France. Poor Crown Prince Philip. He was only 15 at the time of this story. 
Mm-hmm. He was son of Louis the Sixth, and actually a co-king going on two years. I didn't know that was a thing, by the way. Oh, I mean, he had a, another heir, a possible line to the throne. Well, Louis was the king, right. and he wanted his son. He was his favorite son, so oh, uh, yes, he made him the king simultaneously. Right. So they were co-kings. That's usually not protocol because uh, only one can sit on the throne. So usually when there's a child, they're trained. And so yes. if, say, the, the father dies, and now it's, you can't really have a six-year-old king. Right. Because it's every day we're going to march to Candy Island. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so this is what you have is that I really like Sorry. that one. Yeah. <laughs> we're attacking my favorite the, joke you've ever said on oh, the show. Oh, very nice. That's... Yes, we're attacking the gingerbread fortress uh, every day, and we're staying up real late. If, you're, if okay. your son were staying up till three every day, yeah, so, all right, and sleeping in. So you have a um, people that watch over him, and actually, got, you know, there's a regent and a chancellor, and so you know, at least in Europe. They actually do the ruling for him until he's of age. But, yes. he, but he's trained, well-studied, uh, taught everything that they can teach him, and that's what happens. But anyway, yes, well, back right. to your story there. That's unusual. Yes. Co-king. He yes. was a he was co-king, and he had been for about two years. He was riding his horse through the Parisian market called the Grieve when a black boar ran out from a pile of dung on the banks oh, of the Seine <laughs> yeah. in front of his horse, startling it causing him to be catapulted over the front of the horse, at which point he sustained, I guess, either horrific head injuries or multiple limb fractures that were so bad, he never regained consciousness. Mm, That's it. You get injured back then, you're done for. One story said that his companions, so afraid of the outcome, actually left him there in the street where some poor townsfolk carried him away for help, but he did not survive. Now, this is a pretty horrible way to go out, and the poor kid was only 15 years old. He busted himself up on the pavement. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Now, but however, as with a lot of these stories, some of these details may be apocryphal. We're actually referencing... The darkest account of the story, which was from a book written by a man known as Walter Mapp. He was a Welsh medieval writer who lived from 1140 to 1209. His retelling of what happened to Philip is pretty stark. We're going to refer to an excerpt of the one book attributed to him, which is called De Nugis Curialium. Oh, sounds Latin to me. Not sure if I'm saying it. Yeah, it's close. Um, This actual passage was cited in the book that I was reading to get brushed up on this called The Death of Kings, Royal Deaths in Medieval England by Michael Evans. It was intensely interesting, Mm. uh, by the way. Sure. I recommend it. Why don't you read this excerpt for us? Oh, okay. Here we go. Didn't practice this, but here we go. He degenerated from his father, Louis VI's ways, and strayed away from his father's orders, and with proud brow and tyrannical pride was injurious to all. But it befell at the Lord's command that one day when, in company with many knights, he had put his horse to the gallop in that part of Paris called La Grève, a black pig rushed out of a dunghill on the bank of the Seine and ran in among the feet of the galloping horse. The horse stumbled and fell, and the rider broke his neck and died. But the pig suddenly plunged into the Seine. Therefore his father Louis the Fat, or rather the Lord, who had delivered France from out of the mouth of a lion, set in his place the kind and merciful Louis, later Louis VII, as he put Daniel in place of Saul. Right. So this book, The Death of Kings, is really fascinating. One of the things that uh, Evans, the author, talks about in the book 
is how these deaths of royalty need to be painted a certain way. Is he sure. diabolical, divine intervention, or whatever? Because the thing about this kid, God rest his soul, 15 years old, yeah. is even though he was Louis the Sixth's favorite son, apparently he was kind of a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, really? Like somebody uh, raised with a lot of uh, luxury and pampered that's yeah. to be a jerk? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, no, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes no, it it's, doesn't. It's personality, temperament, the natural temperament of the person, because look at celebrities now. Some yeah. are very nice. Some, not so nice. Not so much. Because everybody's kissing their butt. So yeah. when that happens, some people react differently. Yeah, you know, yeah. so that there you go. It's interesting because what Evans is implying happened here is that people were probably concerned about the nature of this kid. So when this yeah. accident happened, he fell off the horse and he became fatally injured. Yeah. It gets worse and worse. It's a black pig. There's references to the devil. It's coming oh, out of a pile yeah. oh. of poop. Yeah. You know, it's running across. It's tripping the horse. It runs back into the river. It's all very... Metaphorical. Exactly. It's, yes. No, yeah. there's a lot of symbology, a lot of imagery here. That's something interesting to say about the black pig that, yes, associated with the devil coming from the dung heap. So Yeah. But either was, way, yeah. this story, unlike some of the other ones where we can't really point to, yeah. because they're more ancient, we can't really point to what, if anything, happened. This is a true story. This kid did pass away. He exi- and well, he he no. fell off the horse. You, you go Who with, knows what really happened? And e- falling exactly. off a horse in general is not the most proud way to go. <laughs> well, but, no, but again, back then, you know, the days before any kind of medication other than herbal, you know, homeopathic remedies, it's like too uncommon. They believe that he may have uh, fallen off a chariot during a race or a hunt, yeah. fractured his leg. That becomes gangrenous or basically, uh, yeah, he becomes infected. Well, he already had a club foot, didn't he? Sepsis. Yeah, he had some some congenital problems. I can't see him having an easy time on a chariot in the first place. No. And the other thing, I was thinking about this the other day, I haven't gone to the dentist. What do they do with your wisdom teeth? It's just like, oh, no, you're going to suffer with these the rest of your life, or they just yank them. It's just, I mean, I have a lot of uh, admiration and respect, and I, I love the lore about it and the history and all that. I love to read about it don't really need to go visit these times. I'm yeah. sorry, I'm going to keep saying that. But <laughs> Well, Henry VIII, they, he fell in a jousting accident and uh, his leg never really healed properly. And, and I just watched a documentary not too long ago that he's the king and they can't do much for him. You would go into his chambers and they said the first thing he would, would hit you is the smell because uh. his leg is basically rotting on him. And he, he lived quite a ways after that accident, but he eventually succumbed to it. So mm. there you go. I thank modern medicine every day for the advances we are able to enjoy. Okay, so this next one, it's really not so much the story, but as I mentioned at the top of the show, there's some interesting bits about it. We'll see how much of that is interesting because of what happened in the story. But I find what's interesting is that it starts from a really vague memory of years ago into a possible factoid, a fun fact, if you will that we got the Ark involved, and I'm glad they did what they did, but I felt a little bad because I had some sketchy information well, about it. Well, you know what's and funny about this? They time, but they actually found something. You have been telling me this story off and on for yeah. years. Oh, yeah. yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Uh, not not <laughs> yeah. repeat it, not like you repeat yourself. No, no, right. But I would say that you told it to me at least once or twice a year for a the year. past three or four years. As and I've it, seen it, it's pretty amazing. But it's, then we yeah. went to look for it and couldn't find one character of a word about it. Here Why don't you explain how that all went Okay, down? you know, as we do research for the show and, and uh, as we draw you folks in that love to listen to this, I don't know why, but you do, <laughs> but you do. We're so thankful. <laughs> Remembering something that's kind of vague and I was close, 
and then actually seeing what the truth is about it. I'll ask you in a minute here what you remember about me telling the story, because again, this is how history is often written, as we just saw with the black satanic pig. So yeah. <laughs> so here's what happened. I got a gift and like, jeez, uh, I don't know, 2008, 2010. I love those little fun uh, tearaway page-a-day calendars. Yeah, you know, those are ama- so cool. Yeah, and so they have fun facts. Trivia and, and or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. And every day you get a little fun fact or trivia or, or some historical thing. And this one was uh, Amazing Coincidences. It was kind of interesting. I tore the page off, and then I immediately placed it under a potted plant to get, <laughs> so it didn't mark up the counter. And there it stayed for a few years. So like every year, you know, you, you go to clean that out, and you kind of take a look at it, and it kind of stuck in your head, and I always remembered it. But I remembered it as, as um, there was a gentleman, and I thought it was um, Jacob Spitzer. That's how I kind of remember the name vaguely. I remember the date, 1787. As the story goes, now I, this is, again, as the facts get mutated, this guy had been shot through the chest four times wearing this jacket. Now, he died, of course. What was interesting is that that was his brother's jacket that he was wearing. And several years prior to that, his brother was also shot through the same four holes. So in a backward reveal here, he gets a jacket his brother was killed in, possibly shot four times. He puts the jacket on. He also gets shot through the same four bullet holes as his brother previously. Right. Amazing coincidence, right? Yes. So I thought like, well, that's a pretty good death. I mean, it's a, you know, interesting death (laughs) that we should check into. I always remember that, like, got to do something with that. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, So I said, it wasn't fun for them. No, it never is. Life was horrible back then. Nothing is fun. You groveled around in the dirt until you were 45 and then you died. So that's, that's life. But, uh, but you have your family, you you enjoy that and and the same kind of things we do today. But here's the point is that I then turned over to uh, Tess and the Ark and I said, Hey, and I prefaced it. I don't know how much of this I remember correctly, but here are some vague details. See what you can do with it. I said, Jacob Spitzer, 1787, uh, late 1700s, you know, late to 18th century, early 19th century, sometime around there. I knew it was that time frame, but I'm not sure about the name. So they did some digging and some folks in the Ark finally came up with some answers. Okay, so we have some names. Some are real names, I believe. We have Druid Otaku. He's one of our participating members here. He yeah, found... the Ark. But just quickly, if you're just joining Sorry, the show, yes. a lot of yeah. people know what the Ark is, but I'll just restate it real quickly. It's an acronym for the Astonishing Research Corps, which is a group of volunteers and $25 level Patreon supporters who help us with research and uh, do a really amazing job of it. So that's when we, whenever we say ARC, that's what we're talking about, ARC, the Astonishing Research Corps. Yes, thank you so much uh, for all your, my misdirection in yeah. your efforts. But here's the thing. Is Not that your misguided efforts. No, 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 no. You're, you're gu- misguided yes. instructions. I start everything. Well, as Tom Waits said, everyone starts off here with bad directions. <laughs> so what happened is that I got the name close. So, uh... I believe, yeah, Druid Otaku, as that's kind of his uh, CB handle there. Yes, yeah, he found name. an entry in the Weekly World News, so you know it must be true. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, but you know what I'll say? Those those kind of uh, fun rags like that. Every once in a while, they get something right. Yeah, your point that they're being a kernel of truth. Yes, as it appeared in the supermarket tabloid, they got the basic story. Like, okay, there now we have a lead. However, it was Yabez or Jabez Spicer. Right. He was shot in 1787. What was the name that you thought originally? Jacob. Jacob so, Spice, Spitzer. Yeah, I just... It was Yabez <laughs> Spicer. I've seen it in a couple of other books. One's like weird but true or unusual but true. Kind of, we'll have links to these. They're yeah. kind of fun. And you read those. Here's the thing you always have to keep in mind. Because you see it in a book, 
Yeah. Don't mean it's true. No, and we've, it's funny <laughs> it since we've been doing the show, yeah. it's amazing the amount of misinformation we've uncovered. Well, and again, Sources don't even line up with each other. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of times you have to make your choice about exactly. which one is going to be the gospel on it. You make a choice as to what makes sense to you or something that kind of lines up, or it's the first mention. Yeah. And even then you don't know. And here's where this story is going. So now we got some names, we got some dates, then you can do a, a further search on it. And uh, some other folks here, Skip Harvey and Terry Favor, they both did a little digging and they both found some great articles and some entries in, in books. So now you're thinking like, okay, these guys did exist. Yeah. There is something to it. So and then you really want to find out what the real story was. At that point, you're like, okay, it's not a ghost of a story. It's an actual story. Something was there. So what did you guys find out? So now there's an entry in Ripley's Believe It or Not. Which oh, right. I personally <laughs> put more weight into. Yeah. It's Ripley's. Come well, on. Well, they're betting no. more than most, certainly more than the Weekly World News. Yes. That's their reputation. People, it's their reputation. People yeah. think it's silly, but it's been around for a long time. And here's my point. For on all it. we know, it's they a, own this jacket. They have it right over here in Hollywood. <laughs> it's a, it's could be, it could be on display. That's exactly the kind of things that uh, Ripley collected. Yeah. So you don't know where they're getting their information. And really, at the end of the day, does it matter if it's uh, four bullets or two? It's really not. But, um, you know, so it's how not many critical. bullets was it? Let's well, get down to that. Well, I found, and some other guys in the ARC found, this book called The History of... I've actually got it right here, Forrest. It's History of Eastern Vermont from its earliest settlement to the close of the 18th century, volume two. Uh, yes. Dated January 1st, 1865 by J. Munsell or Munsell. Right, right. Yeah. It's a early account, uh, but within it is an excerpt from the Vermont Gazetteer of the time. So this is kind of an affidavit of what happened. Daniel Spicer was a Revolutionary War veteran, as were a lot of the folks around this town here in the hills of Massachusetts. All of colonial America was, a lot of it was hard scrabble, subsistence farming. What's fomenting here is a lot of dissension between the state governments, what are very brand new forming national government, if you will, and Who's getting shifted? Who's getting screwed, as we say, and who's getting all the money? And, and, and there was a shortage of cash. It was kind of a very rocky time. Yeah. So this guy actually ties into Shea's Rebellion. Yes. Led by Daniel Shea. I believe he mounted a 4,000 men in a... Um, I think it was 5,000. Yeah. But yeah, you're right, okay, so, so, you're so, right Yeah, so four yeah. to 5,000 men in an actual rebellion on the armory at Springfield, Massachusetts. And uh, they were going to rob the arms, take the arms, and uh, overthrow the government. Theoretically, this is a an army of farmers. A lot of our founding fathers but it oversimpl- were... it oversimplifies it, it to does. say it, it was does. a farmer's rebellion, which some people did. And there are a lot of people that believe that Shay's Rebellion was part of the impetus for the Constitution. Absolutely, because they realized that the Articles of Confederation that they had at the time were not satisfactory to everyone. It was was very lacking. These people were mad. These people (laughs) were mad because what happened is that people on the coast who were the more successful merchants and businessmen, well, they seemed to get elected more, and they were calling the shots. So all the people that lived in the hills and it's like, hey, well, we're, this really we're, sounds familiar. It, dude, there is nothing new <laughs> under the sun, is yeah. there? So yeah. same thing now. It's like, we want representation, and uh, we're going to get it by hook or by crook or by musket. So they mounted uh, an actual rebellion, which was put down by the cannons of the arsenal. But it was so tumultuous and such a big deal at the time that it actually got General George Washington out of retirement to say, all right, okay, you know, settle down, everybody. Yeah. 
I will be president for, well, I ended up being two terms. Yeah. And some people wanted him to be king. And he's like, no, no, no we're not doing the king thing. We yeah. just got away from that. Let's not do that. Okay. Not a great idea for our people and what we believe in. So here's a little bit of the background leading up to this bullet jacket baloney here. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> this is the thing. It actually kind of happened. So Daniel Spicer was the brother of Yabez or Jabez Spicer. And uh, he was a Revolutionary War veteran. This is about the ending of the Revolutionary War, so 1784. He is helping out a, uh, a friend get to another territory that he had been barred from to go see his wife and family. Again, between states, not a lot of unity. People believe different things. They were, and back then, they were willing to kill and defend uh, their area and, and basically just shoot at you. Yeah. <laughs> because you weren't on board with their with their ideals. So his friend or acquaintance, this guy who's is named, I think it's Goodno, but it's spelled good enough. And just yeah. imagine the jokes he had to put up. It's like, oh, yeah. good enough. <laughs> it's no, it's good enough. Dang it. Yeah. Anyway, so he's trying to get back to see his wife and kids, but he can only travel at night. And they're trying to get back to the town of Guilford. So what happens though, he gets stopped by a sentry at night and, you know, who goes there? And then suddenly appears a contingent of men who just would rather he was dead. Very kind of vicious guys. They start shooting at him. Daniel Spicer is hit in the hip, and he gets a bullet through the chest and the torso. And then some bad things happen. Instead of, uh, you know, giving him aid, they were wearing snowshoes. This guy is bleeding from two different places. He's got a potentially very painful and, and lethal wound. I don't know how bad uh, the hip shot was, but you know, you're talking about musket balls. These are 50 caliber ball bearings that tear a hole through you. You can punch your fist through. Yeah. He's bleeding terribly and they, they make him take his knife out and cut off his own snowshoes so they can steal them. And they, they rob him of everything. Ugh. And instead of helping the guy, they dump him on some poor guy's doorstep and just kind of leave him there. All the while mocking him for his let's say, territorial beliefs. He had nothing to do with it. It was the, really the other guy that was banned from the area. He was just kind of helping this guy along. Right. And he told the guy ahead of time, I'm really paraphrasing here, but basically, hey, you know what? I'm not taking sides in this. I'll help you because you seem like a decent guy. I'll help you. But if it comes down to an argument, I'm not getting on anybody's side here. I'm just right. helping you out. He's the one who ends up getting shot. Good no, no good, good enough. No good deed. No good enough deed. Yeah, no <laughs> they, good enough deed because unpunished. He ran off into the woods. He was able to escape. So Daniel Spicer was known as a very upright kind of stand-up guy. So very right. nice dude. He ends up taking the, the brunt. So here you go. He's got a jacket now. I believe that has one, but I could see where it says two yeah. bullet holes. Because again, all I could read here from this account is that he got shot in the hip. So that might be two right. bullet holes, at least one fatal one. He dies. Cut two. 1787, his brother now takes up arms in the Shays Rebellion. He inherits the jacket. Yes. Now, he either gets cut Which down. Which some people might yeah. have considered maybe bad luck. Well, I'm just thinking, <laughs> you know, was, wear the jacket that my brother was shot to death in. Yeah. I don't know. Because he did die. You didn't say that, by the way, but he died. He did die. Yeah. yeah, painful death. So his brother, and again, I was saying this to the ARC, like, do you want a blood-soaked jacket? Yeah. Uh, hey, clothes were hard to come by. Now, my other theory is that it might. a lot of these guys were wearing their uh, Revolutionary War uniforms. Right, maybe it was a uniform after, jacket. Could have been a uniform jacket. I don't know what he was wearing uh, then, but basically now... Jabez, Yabez, has got this jacket. He then, again, takes up arms during this rebellion. He gets cut down with either cannon fire shooting grape shot, or he gets a musket ball through the same hole. So now this is in the, in the account, which we'll post. I don't think four shots, maybe at least one. That's the account that we read here, is that there was one big bullet hole that he died with. 
Yabez gets shot through the same bullet hole. And this is my well, point, is that I think at the time, yeah. if that happened, you would have made a note of it. We have the affidavit here. There you go. Let's read the affidavit. Okay. And you keep saying Yabez and Jabez. <laughs> I'm giving it's, people it's a choice. J-A-B-E-Z. I'm well, not that's sure. A, if they are of European descent, and it's, it's like we're German, it's like a, the, the J is a yay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The, the J is a Y I'm just going to read it. Okay. Yabez Spicer of Leyden, Massachusetts, a brother of Daniel Spicer, served during a part of the years 1786 and 1787 in the well-known Shays Rebellion and was killed on the 25th of January in the latter year while engaged with others in an attempt to take the arsenal at Springfield. It is said that he wore on this occasion the same coat in which his brother was clad when wounded by the Vermonters and that the fatal ball passed through the same hole which had been made by their bullet. Vermont Gazetteer, page 142, Holland. Yeah, Holland's Historical West Massachusetts. There we go. So there is some truth to that story. That little yeah. page on your calendar <laughs> took some license, <laughs> and so did you probably un, unintentionally. Yeah, it was all crumpled and uh, been water soaked, yeah, yeah. of course. So I threw it away eventually. But what's even a better story than that? One bullet hole, four yeah. bullet holes. The more bullet holes, the better. Yeah. If you want a little top around that story, what's better than that? Killed on the same, you know, exactly one year to the day. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You, These are the details yes. that start to come out. It's a much better legend. It's even crazier. It's like President Lincoln having a secretary named Kennedy, President Kennedy having a secretary named Lincoln. Yeah. You, you know, it's all these kind of things. It's the flip-flop. It's the connections we make that make it a good story. Now, that's an okay story. That's pretty interesting. He got shot through, you know, look, in World War One, a lot of the shell-shocked troops in the trenches would hide in the craters created by artillery shells, artillery hits, mm -hmm. thinking that, well, two shells can't hit in the same place. And yes, they can. Yeah. So a lot of those yeah. guys cowering down in the craters got hit just exactly the, in the same place. Yeah. Because you think about it, that with the wind, uh, the direction, the weight, all things being equal, it's very likely that it's going to hit in the same place. So there you go. Yeah. I'm saying it can happen. So that's the origin of a little blip of a story. So are you going to uh, any holiday parties this year? Does this recording session count? Uh, not, not, not really, no. <laughs> uh, then no. But I am wearing the watch I would wear if I was going to one. My movement chrono and gunmetal black with sandstone straps. It's pretty sharp looking. Black and tan. Also one of my favorite beverages. Uh, what about you? Any fancy Hollywood parties? Uh, it's not really our style, but I do put on something nice for Christmas dinner and New Year's, and I'm definitely taking my movement watch to visit the in-laws this year. I'm hoping it'll improve my image with them. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they think you're just fabulous. But it's always a good idea to look your best at any gathering, because people do notice, and they do make assessments. And that's one of the ideas behind movement watches, because starting at just $95... You can get a watch that goes with any outfit or style, and it'll definitely give a boost to your image. Movement style is minimalist and modern, but it's also classic and chic, so it really doesn't look like anything else out there. It's a really clean design that makes for a distinctive look, and it also makes a distinctive gift for both men and women. Why not start getting compliments like we've been getting? Just go to their website and see what we're talking about. And with free shipping and free returns, it's time to step up your watch game. You really have nothing to lose, except that slovenly image. Come on. <laughs> hey, I wasn't talking about you, as far as you know. Get 15% off today by going to movementwatches.com slash legends. That's mvmtwatches.com slash legends. Join the movement. 
Hello everyone, I'm Carly and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Right, so here's a fun one. Yeah. Do you know what a cassowary is? Oh, yes. It's a delicious layered dish, right? No, Baked, uh, that's casserole. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> no, <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't have the lasagna. Oh, we had a no. lasagna for lunch. No, we had the uh, chicken parm. It was yes, very good, but I had that on the brain. Uh, no, I do know what it is. It is a large emu-like bird yes. related to some other, the ostrich, I believe, I specifically looked up a picture of it. It's very prehistoric looking to me. It's funny looking, yeah, uh, to be honest. But there's a thing about this bird that you need to know. You don't want to call it funny looking to its face because it might kill you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Literally. No. We'll try and have some pictures of it. Yeah. Uh, but what you notice is that, yes, it's, it's got the kind of the dinosaur horned brow bill uh, it's, it's on a, the top of its head. It's a bony cask yeah. that they use to bash their way through the thick brush. Oh, gee. Well, so there's a purpose for that. Yeah. Aren't they the only armored bird in the world? That's exactly right. Okay. Now there's no yeah. other bird with armor. <laughs> so just let that be your first warning. Yeah, yeah. And it can weigh up to 130 pounds and be up to five and a half feet or, or two meters tall. Wow. Just punch that in. You'll see like cassowary attack or people, human injured or killed by cassowary or other animals. Here's what you notice if you're thinking dinosaur. You look at its feet. Yes. And uh, very much like a velociraptor, it's got a very long, sharp, pointed nail yeah. as one of its three toes, The right? middle toe is a dagger. They have been known to be able to disembowel an enemy with one kick with wow. that claw. Just like so, Bruce Lee. Right. Yeah. So you think you can run away, right? You can run away from it if you get to Oh, no. No, not, not really, because <laughs> it can also run up to 32 miles per hour or 50 kilometers per hour. Wow, that's pretty cool. But that's okay. You'll be safe behind this fence. <laughs> nope, they can jump up to five feet. Uh, that's all right. I'll swim away from the damn thing in this water. Um, Yeah, they're great swimmers. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. they're apparently super yeah. smart too, like like the velociraptors, which you just mentioned, and the ones in yeah. Jurassic Park. According to one website, they've actually been known to outflank groups of people trying to capture or hunt them. They, oh, and they're geez. very stealthy. Yeah. They move a lot like velociraptors in the movie anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, who knows what a velociraptor really would move like, but it's speculation. Right. But they can really blend in and disappear in the foliage. And they know how to yeah. flank you. And, yeah. you know, it's that's that's the scene you around the movie. to that movie. Yeah, yeah you part the girl. brush and there's that giant eye just staring at you. Yeah. And then while you're staring at that, getting your gun ready, another one's coming up behind you. Yeah, and then uh, he, and then I, he yeah. says, "Clever girl." <laughs> Which, hey, you know, in the time it took to say that, you could have cocked the gun and shot at least one of them. Yeah, I totally believe that because birds are smart. I've had a couple of cockatiels, and uh, they're smart and they're cranky. Sometimes. You had cockatiels? Yeah, as a kid, no, no. Oh, okay. They're pretty gentle, but I got to tell you, uh, if they're angry or ornery, and uh, you reach in there, and yeah, they'll snap at you. They'll... So I can only imagine this thing if he's well, really this, hungry. This thing is like the Terminator. Now, yeah. Listen to this story. This is a story and the reason that we first brought this up. This is the very first documented death of a human being at the hands... Sorry, it doesn't have hands. No offense, Cassowary. <laughs> no hands at all. There's one going to be poking outside your, your bedroom window at night. <laughs> What'd you say about my hands? <laughs> April 9th, 1926, from the Burwa News in New South Wales, Australia, which is where they are native, and also yeah. Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. But here's this very short article about Philip McLean, Philip McLean, a youth, was walking through a farm with a dog in the Mossman district on Tuesday when he encountered a cassowary. The dog bailed up the bird, 
which became infuriated and kicked the lad to death. Oh, dear. So it's the dog's fault. Yeah. <laughs> Why did he help? No, no, we should got to talk have... to Marie about this. She's oh. keeping a running list of dog sidekicks. Uh, Snowball. Do, do, well, dogs helping bandit. or not helping. Yeah, and she's, uh, boy, she's not sparing them <laughs> any, uh, any. Yeah, uh, I think you know. we're going to have to do a line of T-shirts with these dogs. <laughs> Mercy. Now, this bird is funny looking, though. And I, yeah. and I guess Philip was the first documented death by cassowary, but he's not the last. Uh-huh. ARC member Terry Faber, who we mentioned earlier tonight, yeah. really dug up some other good stories about these things attacking people. Uh, by the way, have you ever heard uh, Kevin Hart's routine on ostriches? Uh, yeah, that a little bit. That is funny. Yes. That is really funny. Yeah. People got to look that up. If I can find a link to it, we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> he's not a fan? Uh, yeah. He yeah. had an ostrich experience that it was hilarious. But well, he's not, well, I got to say, he's not much taller than one, but uh, <laughs> okay, no, I'm, I'm serious. I'm not, right. I'm not I'm very tall myself. It's formidable. And until you actually, people don't know this about animals. Until you get up next to them, yeah. this happens to people. I see them like frightened, terrified of cows or horses. Yeah. They don't realize how big something is to yeah. get next to it. So yeah. this is a big dang bird. Yeah. Another thing about Papua New Guinea, by yeah. the way, that we should point out was that it was Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan's That's last right. departure That's point. That's right, where she yeah. barely got off the ground, yeah. but made it. Yeah. Keeping in mind that the cassowaries are generally shy, they don't attack unprovoked unless maybe you meet one that has experiencing <laughs> mental illness. <laughs> a bad day. Yeah. yeah. And there's actually villages in Papua where they are revered as mystical and they are not hunted or traded. And yeah. in the 2004, in the Guinness Book of World Records, listed them as the most dangerous bird in the world. Ah. And in fact, the zookeeper, Luke James, apparently was making fun of how dangerous, in quotes, a cassowary was in his care, and it killed him. Oh, jeez. Again, death by irony. Yes. Note yeah. to self, avoid... Large, flightless birds. Well, <laughs> there was an uh, Australian comedian, uh, Rob something, and his emu. Uh-huh. It was a pet emu, but basically it was a large puppet. So that he had a fake arm that went around the, the top of the emu. Oh, that's hilarious. And, uh, and of course, his hand was operating the neck. And of course, he would do a dumb joke, and the thing would immediately just punch him in the growing. And it just, and that was part of it. Like, it, yeah. was, just, it was an early sack tap joke. So yes. it, was, yeah. but it, it was hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so he was doing his Australian kind of humor, but they can be Nasty. They know. We can, we, These birds, yeah. they, the joke you make about yeah, the groin, yeah. and we've talked oh, about you this and in the other geese. shows. You and the going the after, geese? yeah, the geese going I after. I watched a huge white swan try to take my dad out in the same, in the twig and berries uh, at, at, a, at a cemetery. We yeah. were paying our respects, and the swan <laughs> just came after him. No, that was, that's another thing. Uh, <laughs> he's that saved is by a, his belt buckle. <laughs> <laughs> it misfired. Him and know. Ben Carson. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if they, they know that's where your wedding tackle is. What I do know is that <laughs> swans are vicious. We always think of them like, oh, beautiful creatures floating on a lake. I think this happened uh, somewhere up in the Northwest here. We had some do-gooders. There was a park with a river, and they thought the park service is taking the, the beautiful swans out of this area. Yeah. I think they took a couple of swans from another area, placed them in this park, and what happened was this 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 nice little piece of the river there with a little bay had a lot of ducks in it. The swans ended up killing all the ducks. Ah. And I believe what they do is they grab the duck's head and they hold it underwater until they drown. Oh my. They're very territorial. Yeah. And so this is what I'm saying is like, people, you don't know what you're doing. Don't mess with nature. Yeah. Don't throw things at buffalo. Don't surprise a moose. Yeah. <laughs> these are not Disney also, animals. Also, don't put the baby buffalo in the back of your SUV. Don't. Not from here, but you know what? Again, nature takes care of itself. And don't make fun of a cassowary. Yeah. <laughs> again, when you look at them, yeah, I can see why uh, the Papua New Guineans revere them because they're, again, they're very prehistoric, just with a bone on the head. They look like yeah. dinosaurs. You leave them alone, they'll probably leave you alone. That's the good rule of nature. So. All right. So you can't really talk about 
unusual deaths without talking about Isadora Duncan. Well, she was pretty well known at the time. She was. She was a stunningly talented, world-famous dancer in the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. uh, she was born in California, but she was famous worldwide. And she was also famous for being outspoken about all kinds of things that women did not talk about, including the fact that she was an atheist, she was bisexual, and a communist. <laughs> Go down and get a coffee. You're gonna meet. You're gonna yeah. meet somebody at the coffee shop with yeah. all those <laughs> with all those traits. Yeah. She actually apparently took a boob out on stage, <laughs> and then she had this really long, bright red scarf, and uh, she was waving it all around, and she yelled, "This is red, and so am I." Okay. <laughs> so first, I'm sorry. When I first read that, I, I didn't know what. Part was, well, red, was red. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but well, no. Kind of. I mean, very. She, out, people didn't do that back then. No, that she was, was kind outspoken. of a badass. Yeah. At the turn of the century, you're getting to the, into the flapper age. Women are are feeling their oats, I guess, as you say, or just realizing, like, hey, we're we can speak out too. Yeah. So, and then she, yeah. she actually, at one point, she moved to Moscow and opened a dance school there. But oh. I guess the Soviets failed to make good on their promises to help her with the school, so she left the country and it left it to. Um, woman named Irma, who I, I remember reading about. Uh -huh. I can't remember how they were related. Yeah. And she came back to the West. So uh, let's come back to that red scarf we mentioned a few minutes ago. Isadora Duncan had a thing for scarves. Yeah. They were kind of her trademark. So to that end, and hers, sadly, yeah. on September 14th, 1927, which was a seminal year, was the year one of my favorite movies, Metropolis, by Fritz Lang, uh, was yes. made. Mm -hmm. And the first talkie, the jazz singer, was made. Metropolis cost over a million dollars, by Wait, the way, to produce. In in relative in, terms. Yeah, in 1920. Yeah. No, it was an actual million An dollars. actual million, yeah. I think. Yeah. Or maybe it's a relative million. All I know is that the I mean, German, I, the German relative government... relative million because that's the GDP of a lot of countries Yeah, well, the, then, the so. German government went broke making it. I do know that. Yeah. But it, it proved to be profitable. Uh, <laughs> what well, we enjoy today, yeah. Yeah, the, and the Jazz Singer was also released that year. But anyway, Isadora was off for a ride in Nice. We're back uh, in Nice, France, uh -huh. with a friend of hers, a mechanic, in a beautiful Amel car. Which yeah. Which is, by the way, is a gorgeous car. The thing about these cars uh, back then is that they were... Open-wheeled, really. They had the big wire wheels that stuck out. You could see the yes. axles, all that. And it kind of had a, a boat body, almost like a Bugatti or an, no, that's or what an Auburn. Yeah, that's what they were based on, actually. Yeah. yeah. So you're sitting back there in the back, and she got this crazy long scarf. Uh, flowing in the wind. Flowing in the wind. And Looking actually, awesome. when she piled in this car with her mechanic friend to go for this drive, she was pulling away. And I guess one of her friends actually tried to warn her about the scarf, she was like, this maybe doesn't seem like such a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Please keep um, your hands and feet inside and scarves inside the vehicle at all times. Yeah, and I guess yeah. she didn't hear that. So uh, along this drive, the scarf got caught up in the wheel and axle, wrapped Ooh. around it, and according to some sources, yanked her out of the car by her neck, breaking it. Other sources say she was quickly strangled, almost to the point of decapitation. decapitation. She was killed instantly. Yeah. This one's particularly gruesome, but you know what it reminds me of a little bit is, have you seen The Incredibles? The superhero capes and yes, no capes. <laughs> Remember they because they go to they go to meet yeah. their costume designer. Her name was Edna. Edna Mode, I think Edna Mode. She's showing all the things that have gone wrong. All with the past. reasons yes. you shouldn't have a cape. He's like, why do I want a cape on my new costume? She's like, <laughs> met the man, express elevator, diner guy, snagged on takeoff, splashdown, sucked into a vortex, no capes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They're making but another like, one, right? They're coming I out can't with it. Wait. Yes, I know. Such Should a great be great. Movie. Anyway, we, yeah, <laughs> we've already talked about cassowaries as Terminators, yes. and at Astonishing Legends, we've had more than a few discussions about artificial intelligence and robots becoming our evil overlords. Ah. So this is my, that's a segue, by the way, in case you can't tell. So um, <laughs> how long do you think, Forrest, it will be before the first robot kills a human being? 
Well, you have to really define your terms because I see where you're going with this. And to the audience, it's probably not what you're thinking. I think everyone's thinking like, oh, iRobot, right? He murders somebody. Will Will Smith comes in the future and uh, solves the case. But yeah. are they so human that we we must treat them like people? Yeah. That's not what you're talking about. No, the, the first robot killed a man 38 years ago. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. See, I think it, <laughs> I thought it already happened. Yes. Yeah. January 25th, 1979. This is the second time we're making a reference to January 25th. That's right. Yeah. That was the day Daniel Spicer was killed in 1780. Yeah. yeah. So again, it would have been a better story if Jabez, uh, Yabez got uh, shot on the same exact day. Yes, of course. Three years later. But but now uh, this yeah. is 200 years later, 17. Yes. So 25-year-old Robert Williams was killed after a strong hit to the head by a robot at a Ford assembly line casting plant. Well, yeah. They were in a place where they were fetching parts. The robots were fetching parts alongside people fetching yeah, parts, and right. it just didn't work out well. No, if you've ever seen them, uh, I used to work on some automotive videos and films uh, here and there, uh, mostly as an editor, but if you see those things in action, not only are they whipping them around at precision speed, let yeah. me put it this way, that is the arena of the robot. Humans yeah. are not supposed to be in there. Also, there's fire coming out of the end of them, big, yeah. massive sparks. Yeah. So it sounds like a, just a terrible yeah, they industrial they accident. Yeah, they weren't planning. It was an no, industrial accident, and they la- they right. labeled it an industrial accident, sure. but there was, of course, a court case. A jury ruled in favor of the family and awarded them $10 million. Yeah, and it all depends on, was his workspace safe? You know, was he... Obviously uh, not. Well, no, it's like, <laughs> how close should you be? Because yeah. if you've seen these things, I've been to the Honda plant in Ohio. Yeah. When they step down, they do go lifeless. <sighs> And they right. all kind of they all kind of collapse and go to their resting state. How does it know when to do that? Well, when you turn it off, like when you if you're pausing, oh, I was going to say, will yeah. it do it when a person is walking nearby? No, I don't know. I think that the idea though is to let them do their job. You humans stay out of the way. So yeah. these industrial accidents happen, but often it's somebody being where they shouldn't, and it's not often their fault. It's not always their fault. How close is their workspace? Were you putting them in danger? Well, you want to hear something interesting about I do. this? Is do you believe in coincidences? Should I say my oft quoted phrase here? Yes. Uh, that I, okay, this was a this was a masterpiece theater here, and it's um, Matthew McFadden, one of my my favorite actors, uh, is also an MI five, I believe, and some great films. He he's plays a detective. He's interrogating this woman who seems very suspicious. She was you know not in the right place at the wrong time, and and then she's very cagey. There's some several coincidences that he brings up to her. You seem like a person of interest for this, and you know she her response is like, well, inspector, you know coincidences do happen. And he says, yes, but they must not happen too often. Yes. <laughs> so that's my whole, <laughs> I love saying it because nice quote. we talk about this before. It's like, how many coincidences seemingly must occur before you personally, you have a number. Yeah. Is it 10? Is yeah. it two? Probably again, if it's a low number, one or two, you kind of let it slide. If it's 10, 20, 30, you have to take notice. Well, here's the interesting coincidence about Robert Williams, the 25-year-old, killed yes. on January 25th, mm-hmm. 1979. His death was on the exact day of the 58th anniversary of the premiere of a play called R.U.R., which was an acronym for Rossum's Universal Robots. That play had been written by a Czech writer known as Carl Chapek. Now, here's the thing about that play. Oh, big deal, whatever. It was 58 years to the day. That play introduced the word robot to the world. That's right. 
And uh, prior to that, folks used the words automaton or android. Yeah, automaton. And, well, oh, you're talking about Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Exactly. That's well, are. that's my yeah. whole point. So mm-hmm. now, now the play itself was considered somewhat dark, but a hopeful warning that robots might one day be a threat to humanity. And in fact, the play features a robot rebellion in it. Oh, Will Smith's getting sued. Yeah. You know. So and, and <laughs> yeah. the play is believed to have inspired Philip K. Dick's novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, uh. which in turn inspired Blade Runner, which wouldn't have existed, at least in the form it did, without the German expressionist film movement, which was born from Fritz Lang's movie Metropolis, or made famous by it anyway, which we mentioned when we were discussing the year of Isidore Duncan's death. So you see, <laughs> it's all connected. There you go. Yeah. Anyway. In some way. We had somebody really kind of angrily, I think he was joking with us, but uh, he, I think, and I know who he was talking about. He says, one of those two guys in that podcast really has that uh, epiphany complex, which he misspelled. <laughs> it's like, what is he talking? And I had to look it up. And yeah. again, that was a whole day of researching. I was like, I, I must know. And I think he was talking about me, that there's epiphanies and everything. Yeah. There's connections. He said, not everything's connected. And it's yeah. like, well, you don't, you don't have to believe that. Right. I guarantee you, young man, something's really weird's going to happen to you, and you're going to think differently about it. That's all I can say. But there are themes that run throughout. They repeat. They rhyme. There you go. A coincidence. You know, one of the reasons we started this podcast is because of our passion for learning about the world we live in and the mysteries that surround us. We really do love mystery, and that's why The Great Courses Plus is right up our alley and why we think all of you listening will love it, too. In fact... All of our listeners can get a full month of free video courses from The Great Courses Plus when you sign up using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. You'll get access to over 8,000 engaging video lectures presented by award-winning professors, and more courses are added every month. And speaking of adding more every month, when The Great Courses Plus started sponsoring us, they had over 6,000 lectures, and now it's over 8,000, which I find mind-blowing. Well, that's why we always say there's going to be something in there for everyone. And with this offer, you can watch as many courses as you want on a vast number of topics, ranging from history, religion, psychology, to photography, art, music, cooking, you name it. Stream as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere, from your smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV. Start learning something new when you have some downtime, like we do. For example, we just started watching a course called The Early Middle Ages, which deals with the time period from 300 to 1000 AD. And a lot of people have heard of the term the Dark Ages, but do you know why it's known to scholars as the Dark Ages? Yeah, because we just watched the same course together? No, I'm, I'm not asking you. It's, oh. <laughs> it's a rhetorical question to the audience. Ah, please continue. All right. It's referred to as dark nowadays because there isn't much documentation from that time span for scholars to piece together and form a historical narrative. Empires were collapsing. Urban life was stagnant. Literacy was plummeting. Europe was becoming isolated. And all of this contributed to people living in that time period being in a dark age themselves. Ah, yes. The end of the ancient world. Well, I love that time period because to me... The world was still magical back then. And if you want to sound as smart as Scott seemingly does, you can check out The Great Courses Plus yourself with a special offer, which will really come in handy for changing the subject at the holiday dinner table. Sign up today to get one month free as one of our listeners. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends.
You know, one of the things I like about Blue Apron, it makes you a better home chef. I know. You learn tips and tricks that you can use to cook everything else. Like I learned to use sherry vinegar to pickle shallots, which really gives some zest to a dish. Right. And I learned about fond, which is the brown bits and caramelized drippings at the bottom of the pan. Add a little wine to deglaze it, and it turns into a flavorful sauce. Now, that's not really big news to someone who already knows what they're doing in the kitchen. But for people like us who want to get better at cooking, Blue Apron really makes creating delicious meals not only fun, but you also learn to be a better cook along the way. That's why it also makes a great gift for the beginner as well as the expert. And it doesn't matter where you are in the country because Blue Apron can be delivered to 99% of the continental U.S. and 99.5% of food deserts where people just have trouble finding basic fresh ingredients. Uh, you know, that reminds me of our friends that live on the ranch. At, at, on the food desert. Yeah, and so <laughs> yeah. they're down near the uh, the parallel, what is it, the 30, 33rd parallel? Yeah, you're close. And uh, where there's the, all the cows are being mutilated. <laughs> <laughs> well, the beef is delicious But there, they have sure. to drive uh, well over an hour. No, that's the to point. To get I, their groceries. You're getting great fresh ingredients ship directly to you, so you don't even have to go looking for them. Well, you know, speaking of ingredients, Blue Apron does that the right way, too, because the meats are raised responsibly, the seafood is sourced... Why would you give me this? Because <laughs> you, you screwed it up last time. The seafood is sourced sustainably, and the produce is grown using regenerative farming. All of that makes for high-quality ingredients, and these days it's important to know where your food is coming from. It's also something the whole family can help out with. Why not put the kids to work, let them have fun, and teach them some basic cooking skills while at the same time creating a stronger family bond. Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often, and it beats ordering out all the time. Yeah, that's something we were trying to do less of. Not only is it expensive, but it's, it's just not good to be doing that all the time. With Blue Apron meals costing under $10 per person, and since we choose the delivery schedule and the menus we want, we're actually saving money, and it's more convenient. Everybody wins. Well, since I do most of the cooking in our house, I certainly feel like I'm winning. But seriously, the wife and kid are always asking if we're having Blue Apron tonight because it really is something to look forward to. So give the whole family a gift this season or give it to another family you care about. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com astonishing. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Fiddleback, and they've asked me to throw it back to them. All right, so just a few more people here we wanted to touch on before we move on to Gloria Ramirez. This story was one that caught everyone's attention when it happened back in 2010. It's the Segway story. Right. The Segway was the invention that was supposed to change the world. Well, if you don't like to walk much. Uh, yeah. But I will say it does come in handy if you have to do a lot of walking. So you'll see Paul Blart, Mall Cop. I think they make fun of it there. Well, uh, everyone but, you know. makes fun of it because it's expensive <laughs> and you look real silly when you're on it. Yeah. I mean, you just do. Well, I'm sorry. Because and I it, apologize to our <laughs> listeners who have them. And the police officers that uh, that do like I was saying, if you do a lot of patrols and you have a beat to do and you gotta move quickly uh, all the time, it does. Uh, I think say it might undermine your authority. That's, I'm just, <laughs> well, it's like a bicycle cop. Like if you get arrested, what do you have to ride on the handlebars? You well, know? so it's an amazing invention. Yeah, it is. I've never is. ridden one, but we had one for a for an automotive film shoot. And that's what the guy was uh, using because he's trying to glide. When you're walking with a camera, unless you have a, a really expensive steady cam, you're gonna get some shake. So he had a short version one without the tall handlebars that he could just kind of straddled 
And it was amazing. He was able to glide around this car and keep the camera very smooth and steady. Yeah. And when you see it operate, it's like, what are the gyros and the mechanics going on in this thing are mind-blowing for yeah. it to be able to do that because it moves with your body gestures. It must take a little bit of skill, though, because the for the guy who was the CEO <laughs> of the company yeah. in 2010, this is not the inventor. A lot no. of people thought it was the inventor. No, the no. inventor was Dean Kamen. That's right. Who I actually know a fair bit about because he was on 60 Minutes, and I actually That's, watched that story yeah. sometime ago. I, I did too. Yeah. yeah. He flies himself everywhere in his own helicopter, and he's invented a lot of brilliant stuff. I think his first thing might have been a medical pump or something like that yes. that made him rich. Uh, it's always one thing that yeah. you spark onto, and something that you had a line on an idea that I thought was brilliant is a uh, it's a carriage or stroller that climbs stairs. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was one of my... Didn't he have brilliant. something like that where the basically the triangular yes, type track Yes, he made a wheels. wheelchair that the code name for was called Fred Upstairs. Then the projects were collectively called Fred and Ginger. Oh, nice. And everyone talked about Ginger was supposed to change the world. Yeah. Fred was the, the wheelchair, which I believe he did make, yeah. that can climb stairs and also it can stand up. So for people who are in That's wheelchairs right. and they go into grocery stores and they want to be eye to eye with other people or yeah. reach high shelves, this wheelchair can stand them up. It's, a life, it's really cool. a life it's changer. It's a life changer. Yeah. Ginger was the Segway. That was the code name for the Segway. I believe. Uh, I believe. Yeah. And um, well, Fred, I Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. That's yeah, what it, that's yeah what but that was the thing. To. It was yeah. the Fred and Ginger project. Fred upstairs and then Ginger was the Segway. They all thought it was going to change the world. But the CEO of the company... Who took it over after Dean Kamen. Right? Yeah, who took it over, had one, and was he rode it off a cliff to his death. Well, <laughs> look. No, I'm sorry. No, I don't no, mean to laugh at no, it. No, no, no. This guy was a sweetheart of a guy, by the way. No, he He's, was very cool. He was a multimillionaire. He was a yeah. philanthropist, a generous philanthropist. And he was on his Segway on a hiking and walking trail close to his estate near yeah. Boston Spa in West Yorkshire, England, yeah. when he saw a dog walker approaching on the same trail. And I guess it was kind of a narrow trail. So then the dog walker saw him. Yeah. And he was trying to back away. So the guy coming up the hill could pass. And the guy who was coming up said he saw him kind of wobble and then drop from sight. <laughs> Again, went, it's the dog's fault. There, yeah, no, there's another no, dog. I don't know. I, I, I don't you, know. You, you know stop must, blaming on the dog. No, no I'm not. I, uh, I, no, no. I, this guy backed off a cliff. Yes. And now, fell but here's the 42 thing. feet to his death in a river below. It's not the stand-up two-wheeled one. I believe he was... No, uh, it he was. was test it was. No, the guy was on the stand-up two-wheeled one. You're sure? I'm absolutely positive. Researched okay. it myself. I know that he was also testing a four-wheeled model. That was a, yeah. sp a sport model that went really fast. You could take it on jumps. Yeah. Of course, he's not wearing a helmet, I don't think, at the time. But that's one that he was currently prototyping. Yes. But this is he the stand-up one. He was on a regular stand-up Segway well, when he went off the cliff. There you go. Yeah. That happened. That no, I, happened. Jeez, I would feel... Owner of the Segway company yeah. backed off a cliff on a Segway. Or the CEO, I should yeah. say. And well, it's, it's a true it's, story. Look, but it's, it's not Dean Kamen. Yeah. Dean Kamen right. is still with us. All right. So now we're going to talk about one more person before we move on to Gloria Ramirez. This guy's name is Bernd Brandis, or was, I should say. Yeah. Well, still is. I don't know if anybody's taken his identity. Yeah. yeah. Well, with Bernd, there's strange ways to die, and there's strange ways to die, but <laughs> this guy takes the cake. He was oh, an engineer, I guess, reference. with a cannibalism fetish. He answered a freaking internet ad <laughs> where another cannibal, our mean muse, had asked for someone willing to be killed and eaten to come on over for dinner. Oh, dear. So Bernd, apparently figuring he had nothing else he needed to do for the rest of his life, went over to Armin's house and was willingly murdered and then consumed over a period of 10 months well, by Armin. Armin is right. now serving life in prison in Germany. 
And that's a major what the what kind of story for me. I gotta be honest. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this, I mean, everyone's heard that story, but that's like, yeah. what is going yeah. on? Well, Scott, I will just say this without implicating or besmudging anybody, but there's a local morning, I think, radio zoo show that does a little gag where they read some outrageous news story. Yeah. Usually involves biting or eating of things <laughs> you should be biting or eating. Yeah. And it's entitled, Is It Florida or Germany? <laughs> so that's kind of, yes, that just yeah. says enough yeah. of strange things because... Again, statistically, if you look at like where things are, weird things all you know actually happen, it's not just usually one place. It's that you hear about these sensational stories like this, and it's like, oh, there you go, strange yeah. place. Yeah, we have our own strange places here in the U.S., and uh, Europe has their own strange countries or or just places where these things kind of seem to pop up occasionally. And this is one of the big ones. Yeah, this is because this is what I'm wondering. It's like. We talked about this earlier before we we kind of bullet pointed this. It brings up some moral questions. I mean, I'm sure there's some people out there like, well, you know, if he wanted to, that, that's how he wanted to go. And he found a guy, you know, who that's how he wanted to consume somebody. Yeah. Perfect match. But if this guy was depressed. Online dating. <laughs> not <laughs> so much. At least they put it in the ad and the copy up front. You know, yeah. like, let's get to the point. I would like to eat somebody. Yeah. Which you can't really survive that. Although... Great show here, which I don't know the status of, but it's uh, Hannibal. Yeah. With uh, Mads Mikkelsen. I think he's, uh, he played uh, Le Chiffre in uh, Casino Royale with Daniel Craig. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? No. The bad guy. He bled from the yeah, eye. Yeah, but I can't remember. Yeah. Oh, really? He's a great bad guy. Yeah, then he yeah. plays Hannibal Lecter in the TV show. Very well done. Very dark, well acted, well shot. So in the show, though, Eddie Izzard is another copycat serial killer like Hannibal Lecter. And I think he incapacitates the Eddie Izzard character and serves up his own leg to him. Ugh. He's like, well, uh, it's already cooked and this guy's a great chef. Might as well give it a try. Uh, it's, it's, but that's what I'm saying. He didn't die for it. I think eventually he may have been killed. But I yeah. think the point of Hannibal was that, no, no, you're going to be alive to enjoy this. Yeah. So that's a whole other brand of weirdness I've not actually heard happening. This case, though, this is my point. If he was severely depressed and he was wanted to kill himself and that's the way he wanted to go out, well, the other guy who wants to eat the other guy, you're kind of taking advantage of somebody who's emotionally troubled. And vulnerable in that way. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's not like, well, he just decided he wanted to die and end up in my stomach. Yeah. Just wrong on all counts. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's talk about Gloria Ramirez since you brought her up last week. <laughs> by, by again, total accident. So this is, again, serendipitous. Why don't you refresh our listeners' memories on the story of Gloria? What we were talking about on the live YouTube show at some point was that sometimes you hear stories and you're not sure what the outcome was. Maybe you follow them for a while. And again, this is pre-internet era. I had heard this story that I was fascinated by because there didn't seem to be any answers at the time. I think just to cover my myself, I just said, well, it was either a man or a woman brought into a local Los Angeles uh, you know, suburb area hospital that was giving off really noxious fumes fruity garlic smell. Now we find that out. Yeah. It's just a really odd smell and uh, people started getting woozy and nauseous and then really seriously, one doctor on call there in the emergency room actually kind of passed out and then suffered like paralysis, like serious yeah. medical conditions here. 
which he never really recovered from. And I mean, like, serious. This all points to memory of things that you kind of flash on, and then you may remember some things. You may mishmash elements of other stories into it. It's just that how the memory, how the brain works and how memory is preserved. So it was 22 years ago, and I was surprised I remembered as much as I did. You know, I look at the papers and, and news reports, and again, pre-internet, so you can't really keep up with it. And I just remember, like, well, they thought it was pesticides, possibly that she had gotten into or gotten exposed to, because that does happen. And as I mentioned in the YouTube show last time is that, you know, I have a friend who is a fireman and he says, you do have to watch out. If somebody has gotten accidentally uh, ingested or a lot of times they try and commit suicide, it will come out of the skin. It comes out of your pores and it is toxic. So if it's arsenic or some of the other toxins, that can happen. And so I didn't know if it was a man because I think at the time, the only thing they could compare it to is that a young man who, who was trying to commit suicide swallowed a bunch of ant poison, got brought into the ER, and he was emitting really noxious, toxic fumes coming out of his body. So yeah, you have to don the hazmat, the respirators and all that, because you will, it's like being gassed. Yeah. So that's how I kind of confused. And I couldn't remember. It's like, uh, I don't want to say if it's a man or a woman, but I, it could be either, but it turns out it was Gloria Ramirez, who was brought into the Riverside General Hospital February of 1994, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay, so here I'm going to give you a very basic bullet-pointed outline of what happened on that night. And the ARC found some great articles about it. There's some theories that gets kind of medical and kind of chemical. <laughs> so Chris Cogswell can understand it, and he's got some interesting ideas. But I'm just going to tell you basically what happened and uh, as bullet-pointed and culled together in the Wikipedia article, because basically they cull from a lot of the same articles we found. Keep in mind, Riverside, California is about 60 miles due east of Los Angeles, and it's a fairly large community, fairly large city of its own. And on February 19th of 1994, about 8.15 p.m. in the evening, a woman was brought into the ER. She is Gloria Ramirez, and, and she is only 31 years old, but she is kind of delirious, confused, not making much sense. She's also suffering from cervical cancer, right? Yes, she is suffering from the advanced effects of cervical cancer, and she's brought into the emergency room by paramedics. She's extremely confused, and she's suffering from tachycardia and uh, Shane Stokes respiration, which basically just means she's got an elevated resting heartbeat, and she's breathing kind of erratically, so either really fast, very slow, it's going all over the place. So the medical staff injected her with uh, diazepam, midazolam, and lorazepam to sedate her. So she's getting some chemicals already, and, and we're building up to something here. She's getting some treatment with medications, but it's, she's not really responding to them. She's responding very poorly. So the staff is trying to defibrillate her heart. And at that point, they remove her shirt, and they notice that she's got kind of an oily sheen covering her body, I think in the chest and stomach area. And some people started to notice a fruity garlic-like odor that they thought was coming from her mouth. And they described the sheen as being like what you see on the ground, like at a gas station in the An water. An oily slick. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. right, it's going to reflect, it's a refracting light. Multicolors and, yeah. Some kind of weird oil or sheen. And, and at this point, this is, again, when the story is unfolding on the news and in the newspaper, it's like, they don't know if it's coming out of her skin. Yeah. If it's applied topically or, or what's happening because it smells kind of odd. A registered nurse named Susan Kane attempts to draw blood from her arm and noticed an ammonia-like smell coming from the tube, the little glass tube there. Then she passes the syringe to a medical resident, Julie Gorchinsky, who noticed that there's manila-colored particles floating in the blood. And at this point, the nurse 
Susan Kane, she fainted and was removed from the room. And shortly thereafter, Dr. Julie Gorchinsky, the medical resident, she began to feel nauseated. And then she was complaining that she was lightheaded and uh, she had to leave the trauma room and sat down at a nurse's desk and a staff member checked on her. She, are you okay? And before she could even respond, she passes out. She faints. So then a Marine Welch, a respiratory therapist who was assisting in the trauma room at the time, she was the third person to pass out. So then it's like, okay, something's going on here. And we don't know what it is, but medical protocol, they get the whole staff is ordered to evacuate the emergency room and everybody goes out to the parking lot outside the hospital. Good protocol. We don't know what's going on, but everybody goes out. So overall, 23 people became ill and five were hospitalized. So then a small skeleton crew stays behind to stabilize Ramirez. So there are people with her to make sure, you know, she still needs help. Right. Okay. So unfortunately, at about 8.50 p.m., after about 45 minutes of CPR and defibrillation, Ramirez was pronounced dead from kidney failure related to her cancer. So that's ultimately what she died of, is kidney failure. Now, this raises a bunch of questions. What is causing these people to pass out? And there's a few theories. There's really maybe two or three main ones. And they get kind of technical, but of course there's an investigation. The County Health Department called in two scientists, doctors Anna Maria Osorio and Kirsten Waller. They're on the case and they interview 34 hospital staff who'd been working in the emergency room on, the, on February 19th and they use kind of a standard questionnaire, which is meant to basically see what patterns are here. What's the base of this? Some people had developed severe symptoms as loss of consciousness, shortness of breath, muscle spasms, and they all kind of seem to have some things in common. And so the people who had worked within two feet of Ramirez and handled her intravenous lines had been at the high risk area. So, and then there was other factors that correlated with the severe symptoms, but it didn't seem to match the scenario in which the fumes had been released. But the other thing is you got to keep in mind, the paramedics were working on her on the way to the hospital. So she had people there close to her. Yeah. Who did not seem to get sick, but I think they noticed there was a smell. However, I don't think they drew any blood. And that's a big factor. Once you draw the blood, now there's this strong ammonia smell. There seem to be crystals. In the blood. In the blood. Small white crystals. Right. Yeah. Right. So here we're getting to something that we talk about on the show occasionally, and we don't delve into it because there's so many different factors with this. But basically, it's the old buzzword, mass hysteria. Because it usually happens or starts with women, and it usually starts when one person feels, senses something uh, unusual, a smell. That's usually what it is. Like, and they get kind of nauseous, or they don't know what it is. They just feel nauseous. They start to have symptoms. Somebody else also says, I too feel nauseous. I think I smell what you're smelling. There's something weird about this. And it's a chain reaction. Next thing you know, three, four, five people, maybe 20, 30 people all get it. And it's not just women, men, but a lot of times it'll start off that way. So that was the assessment of doctors Osorio and Waller, that it may have been that because it has all the earmarks for that. Right. However, I would say that, yes, you can pass out and get queasy and that's kind of where that stays. But this Dr. Gorchinsky, she denied this claim of mass hysteria and she evidenced her own medical history that this was unlikely. And after the exposure, she spent two weeks in intensive care unit with breathing problems. And she also developed hepatitis and avascular necrosis in her knees. And I believe in also in the bone marrow. That's pretty darn serious. Yeah. I don't think that I, I get, I am not a doctor, but I would say that a uh, sociogenic hysteria of some kind will lead to certain symptoms. That seems pretty extreme to me. 
Yeah. You know? Actual physical. Death of tissue in your bones and your knees. Yeah. Something's going on. There's some kind of chemical that's going on. So there's a bunch of different factors here. Now, this one, I'm going to just go to the Wikipedia because they explain it much better than I could rewrite it. What's the point? So I'm just going to read it. And this is one, the major possible theory, I believe, which I think Chris Cogswell, who's our resident chemical engineer, grad student, he's got a paper due. He's cramming on that and he's, he's really jammed, but he had time to weigh in on this. And he'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. I think he's kind of behind this main theory. And I, I am too. Because it's not there, a paper, it's a thesis. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah well, we it, call it, 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 it ends up on paper, doesn't it? Yes, it's a it thesis. does. But I'm just, I, I know what I you're saying. People they people understand yeah. the immense pressure. No, he's not <laughs> writing a book report. Okay. Yeah. Yes. It's, no, he's under tremendous pressure, but he did essay. have time to weigh. Yes. He yeah. did have time to weigh in. There's some essay yeah. qualities to it. Why, okay. should, why should I be a chemical engineer? <clears throat> By Chris Cox. <laughs> well, he can be doing this. He's a, <laughs> he's a future as a podcaster, but I'm sure that pays better. So, yes. All right. So here we go. He does have a show, by the way, the Mad Scientist podcast. Yes. Check it out if you can. If you love this kind of stuff. He delves into a little bit of philosophy and a little bit of science. It's all great stuff. Yeah. Okay. So here we go on the theories part, and this is the possible role of dimethyl sulfoxide. So again, from this paragraph here uh, on Wikipedia, the Riverside coroner's office contacted Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory to investigate the incident. Now, one thing I did read that Chris said is like, these guys are the creme de la creme, the yeah. smartest dudes in the room. We're talking the big guns here. So if they're weighing in on this... They're credible. Yeah. May not get any more credible. Drove by, actually also a lovely area. So yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the Bay Area here. So uh, as we already said, she developed hepatitis and avascular necrosis in her knees. So now Lawrence Livermore labs are coming in. And they postulated that Ramirez had been using dimethyl sulfoxide, DMSO, which is a solvent used as a powerful degreaser and as a home remedy for pain. A little side from here is I actually know of it because back when I was in high school, I was on the wrestling team, believe it or not, and our big guy who wrestled at the unlimited weight, he had bad knees. You're wrestling on your knees a lot, so he had a lot of knee pain, and he would rub DMSO on it. And at the time, not many people... I think it's been around since the Dimethyl sulfoxide, right? Dimethyl sulfoxide, DMSO. So he would rub it on his knees and then, you know, wear the knee pads. But I remember it had a funky smell to it. I don't know if I would exactly call it garlic with a fruity smell, but I do know, I do remember this, that he would always chew gum after he applied it to his knees. He wasn't drinking it, yeah. but it would come out of your pores. It would come out of and his And he breath. knew that. So he was trying to be yeah, he considerate don't, yeah, because whoever it, he was crushing. <laughs> you didn't want to get, a, you didn't want to get under him. Yeah. He yeah. would uh, roll you into a pretzel, but yeah, he knew that it made your breath funky. Yeah. I'm trying to remember back. It was a very specific smell, but I will attest that that happens. Yeah. DMSO comes out of your skin, it comes out in your breath, and he would chew gum to kind of prevent that. Okay. But he claimed it worked. He did say it, it did alleviate a lot of knee pain. Yeah, not, and we not, had read that yeah. whoever was studying it back when it first came out, I think it was a, a Dr. Jacob, I yeah. can't remember who he was, yeah, but he like had that. said that he was marveled at how quickly it would be absorbed into the body and it caused no damage to your skin. That so he, it would yeah. pass through it almost like it wasn't there. It's also used to help administer other topical drugs because of this transport property through the dermis. Yeah. That's one of the magical properties of it. Now, I will say just from that personal experience part is that you don't know the dosage or whatever. I believe my wrestling friend, he got it at a local health food store. It got, I think a few years later, it got kind of banned. You didn't really well, see yeah, much Well, yeah, and it. it's another thing that's an important factor in the story is that it's also seen as a home remedy. Yeah. For, for serious it, illnesses. Yeah. And, and that's another thing that the ARC was discussing is that when you have cancer, you're going to try anything. 
And if there's some magical oil that people are talking about, the black, what did the other one that came up with? Oh, uh, I can't remember that. We yes, the black that. sludge, yeah. something, uh, you yeah. know. There's all these kind of strange remedies that sound really way out there, but when you're that desperate, you're going to try it. So her family said that she did not, they never saw her use it. They don't believe she used it. But, you know, people don't tell their families everything. Yeah. And she was termed a non-compliant patient, which means she wasn't taking her regular regimen of prescribed. Well, we don't know if she actually yeah. got a prescription and wasn't doing it. Basically, what that means is that and she she's had not, not started a, any chemo either. That exactly. was confirmed. Yeah. Um, right. So a big thing for me, she does not seem to be on any kind of prescribed medical, regular medical regimen. Yeah. She might be trying home remedies, but she has advanced cancer. The other thing was I thought like, man, when you introduce nuclear medicine, chemo yeah. into this, all bets are off. It's so extreme. The things it does to your body, there's what they call cancer brain. It kind of affects your thinking. You get really talkative and, and jolly in some weird ways. Yeah. You have a metallic taste in your mouth as, as reported. Your appetite's all screwed up. If you start introducing different chemicals like that, then crazy things can happen. So no chemo, I believe. I never read anywhere that No, that we read specifically that she, she was had not, not started it. or done any chemo. Okay, yeah. so here we go. I'm going to pick up again uh, with this paragraph. Okay. Here we go. Users of this substance report that it has a garlic-like taste. Again, I never took it myself. I can only say it, it did make your breath funky. So, yeah. so it's sold in gel form at hardware stores because, again, it's a, it's a powerful degreaser. It could also explain the greasy appearance of Ramirez's body. The Livermore scientists theorized that the DMSO in Ramirez's system might have built up owing to urinary blockage caused by her kidney failure. Oxygen administered by the paramedics would have combined with the DMSO to form dimethyl sulfone. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. It's S-U-L-F-O-N-E, so we'll go with that. Uh, or note, as it's known, DMSO2. Now, DMSO2 is known to crystallize at room temperature, and crystals were observed in some of Ramirez's own drawn blood. Electric shocks administered during emergency defibrillation could have converted DMSO2 into dimethyl sulfate, DMSO4, a powerful poisonous gas, exposure to which could have caused the reported symptoms of the emergency room staff. The Livermore scientist postulated on the new detectives that the change in temperature, which that's a TV show, by the way. Yes. That the change in temperature of the blood drawn from the 98.6 Fahrenheit of Ramirez's body to the 64 degrees Fahrenheit of the emergency room may have contributed to its conversion from DMSO2 into DMSO4. Along with the introduction of the electricity from the defibrillator. Which is interesting because, yeah, now you're introducing an electric shock, yeah. which is a catalyst of some kind. Right. And then they're creating a, a noxious gas. Nerve gas. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, and there's another theory that uh, in the sink nearby, there may have been some urine, urine mixed and, with ammonia. Yeah. I'm sorry. Bleach. Bleach. Yes. Yeah. Urine mixed with bleach. Uh, what I do know is you don't want to mix ammonia and bleach because no. you get uh, you get some bad uh, wartime gas. But yeah. they looked into that and found out that it didn't hold up, that theory. Yes. Yeah. Right. So that's one alternative theory. This seems totally plausible. I mean, this seems like what has happened. I mean, I don't think we can call it solved. Yeah, it's like Cog yeah. says about Lawrence Livermore and these guys are... Certainly, you have some yes, absolutely. smarter than we are. <laughs> no, doesn't that all sound very smart? That's the yeah. No, my point is that there are several You're factors. Using big here. words. DM, the the DMSO <laughs> and the sulfates and the, and the methyls and the, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Again, I, I told Chris my favorite uh, compound, magic methyl. Yeah. 
which will mess you up, man. Uh, <laughs> seriously, that chemistry is fascinating to me. I don't know a, lot, <laughs> know a lot about it. I tend to glean the fascinating points. I just remember in college at the University of Washington, which I did go, uh, mm. we had, um, that's in Seattle. Yeah. Maybe not anywhere near where you're place where I know. Yes. <laughs> we had a, a grad student there who uh, was talking about, you know, we we're asking about accidents. We we're just asking about the gruesome parts of it. And he said, well, our professor today, we got out and we're experimenting with magic methyl. And he tells this cautionary tale where I think a, a grad student or maybe a associate professor, somebody who knew what they were doing, which we should be operating with gloves and under, under a flame hood or something. He unknowingly had a drop of it on his shirt or his collar and uh, during the school day. And by the end of the day, he was dead a drop. Again, this is powerful stuff. Like I said, there's different things going on. There's electricity, there's a lot of chemistry, and that sounds the most plausible. Now, there's other theories, of course. Now, the family has another one because they don't believe that she ever took DMSO. But like, as I said earlier, you know, sometimes people don't, they do things that your family doesn't know about. And they may have another angle on this. They believe that the hospital had a gas leak. Right. And that's what caused all the noxiousness and maybe her early expiration or too early. But she was very well advanced in her cancer. And, and ultimately, like we said, it was kidney failure. Yeah. So generally, as right, you know. Right, which is by yeah. the, her body wasn't able to eliminate the DMSO. Exactly. Well, I don't know if we said that. Fast, but, right. Yeah. That was a good point. It, won't, it, it wasn't enough. coming out. There was no way for it to come out because she was blocked. She couldn't urinate. There was a renal breakdown of some kind. Yeah. She wasn't able to pass that. And again, what, what we see with celebrities is that a lot of them expire when you start mixing chemicals unknowingly. Yeah. You don't know what could happen. Right. This is what we're left with, different kind of theories. And ultimately... I believe in my point of view, and I think you too, and, and maybe our resident uh, scientist here, is that we have a pretty good theory. But as with all these cases and all these strange and unusual deaths, we just may never know what actually happened. that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. We're recording this episode on December 7th, and we'd like to honor the men and women who lost their lives at Pearl Harbor 75 years ago today. We'd like to thank Warby Parker, The Great Courses Plus, Movement Watches, and Blue Apron for sponsoring us. Please remember that supporting our sponsors helps support the show. Special thanks to John Bolin. Join us next week for our last show of the year, where we'll bring you the flip side of the coin that was tonight's episode by sharing some astonishing stories of survival. Hi, I'm Matt Baldwin from Newcastle, Australia. I'm Brian. Hi, I'm Carly Martin, and I give my permission to Astonishing Legends to use my voice galaxy-wide in perpetuity. But if you ever expand the Andromeda galaxy, permission denied. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Good night.